When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off.
welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also joining us in the booth is Ms. Sylvia Hubbard. Hello. <laughs> we are wrapping up Screwball Month with a look at Frank Capra's Arsenic and Old Lace, released in 1944. Though shot several years before that, the film stars Cary Grant as Mortimer Brewster, a drama critic and avowed bachelor who has found the love of his life in Elaine Harper, played by Priscilla Lane, who lives right next door to his kind-hearted aunts, Abby and Martha. There's just one thing. Abby and Martha have a terrible habit of poisoning their single, lonely, old men boarders. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen it. We will still be here. So, Kat, is this another one of those that you saw on TV for the first time? Yes, I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> I was warming up to just say the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I love this one. This is one of my particular favorites. Although it's weird for a screwball, it doesn't like it kind of begins where most screwballs end. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a little bit different to all the other films we've been discussing. But I welcome that. I welcome that. Yeah, this definitely is a little different. This is the, uh, for listeners at home, this is the one movie that I said I really want to talk about this just because I'm such a fan of it. And Sylvia, how about you? When was the first time you saw this and what did you think? I saw another version of this one and I wasn't really a fan of it. I thought it had dragged, but then watching it with Cary Grant was like, Oh my God. Like he was so ahead of his time as an actor, how fast he talked in the catch lines and how he was just picking up, you know, he was picking up things and laying them down. And it was just like, wow, this, it made it much more exciting. <laughs> I was like, I don't remember it being this funny. And then I was like, okay, this is a different version. But yeah, they definitely cast the right actor for this one when they did Cary Grant. I don't remember when I first saw this. I think I was probably somewhere in my early 20s. So in my high school, I imagine this is going to really surprise a lot of people. But I was actually in drama club and was in a few Me plays too. in high school. <laughs> So was I. <laughs> Bunch of drama nerds, right? We had this thing in my high school. They would take the weird generic versions of plays. So there was a version of Arsenic and Old Lace called Anybody for Tea. And that's when I saw it too, because we had to do the play too. All right, yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. We, yeah, it was. Uh, we were. I was a stagehand helping the, you know, and we did this short monologue things and stuff with the two old ladies and stuff. So it's just like. Okay, and then we all went and watched the movie, but it was not the Cary Grant one. <laughs> I was the cop who stayed on stage at the very front of the stage, and the police officers would come to me and tell me what was going on. So I was always yelling, oh, Flynn! And yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> we did a generic version of Murder by Death called The Butler Did It. It was weird, these weird generic versions of plays but yeah anybody for tea so when i saw this i was like god this is so familiar but at the same time so different and yeah the acting oh wow carrie grant and especially you guys know i love peter laurie so just everybody and um edward everett horton i love him and even though he's only in this for just a few minutes he just steals every scene that he's in i loved this movie so much and i'm so excited to talk about it with you guys because this has been such a favorite of mine for so many years I was pretty amazed. Yeah, every scene I was like, I knew what was going to happen, but it just was more exciting 
with Cary Grant. And I don't know why. It's just like, and all the other actors, it was just so different how everything was just popping and going and just, I was like, oh my God, this is a brand new movie. It's like a remake. <laughs> so yes, I definitely enjoyed myself. One thing I noticed actually, because we talked a lot last, was it last episode? Yeah. About the awful truth. Talked a lot about Cary Grant and his like partnerings with women in the screwball era. And he was so good with that because he'd be teamed with some brilliant co-stars. One thing that stood out to me this time, probably because we were having that conversation last week, is this entire film kind of hinges on him completely because everyone else plays it dead straight and it's all down to his reactions, which are just fucking fabulous. His, his facial expressions are so good. And it's all about all, most of the comedy is like his reactions to things. And it's sublime. It's really, really sublime. He's got the really good one liners as well, but there's so much more physicality in this one than the. I think the awful truth, there is a lot of physicality in that, but a lot of it's to do with the banter, isn't it? And he was so good at that. But his expressions in this, especially when he finds that first body in the window seat, are just <laughs> incredible. <laughs> it's just he goes through this series of like eye pops and his mouth and he's, he's just so good. So I, that really stood out to me this time. I'd never noticed it before even though some great people in it it really is Carrie's film this time rather than Carrie and Rosalind Russell or Carrie and Irene Dern or you know as it usually was it really does take over the movie Priscilla and Lane I was noticing when I was re-watching it yesterday I was like she's barely in this film there are wide swaths where she's just not present at all not even whistling in the background it starts where the usual screwball ends with the man who didn't want to be caught gets married. And that's usually where they end, isn't it? It starts off in this like false thing where he's getting married and all that stuff. And it, you feel like you've come into it at the end of another film. And then a new one starts, which is totally out of left field. You just don't expect any of it, which is, is brilliant. There's the photographer and the reporter that are just hanging out at the marriage bureau the reporter's face that i've seen a thousand times before usually plays a very i think it's, it's charles lane he usually is just like always disapproving of everything so it was nice to see his face show up in this it's odd because i don't think this whole thing with mortimer being this avowed bachelor because in this he's both avowed bachelor writes about how matrimony is just all phony and everything and that the only way to live is as a bachelor which is funny coming from Cary Grant but then this whole thing of um, him also being a drama critic I think in every other version of this he's just the drama critic and not the avowed bachelor type I wonder if that's some kind of in joke though because there are a lot of in jokes in this you know because Cary Grant is the sort of marriage guy isn't he for the screwball even when he's divorced he's trying to get married again i mean he does that <laughs> in at least three films so it's like yeah i'm wondering if that was just added for carrie grant like just because it makes it really funny that it's carrie grant being this sort of cynical jaded bachelor type sort of playboy type which he certainly didn't really play that part in the comedy so it makes it even more ridiculous 
And apparently he hated this role. Like, looking back really? at it, he was like, oh, really? oh, I was mugging way too much, and I was just overdoing it. And I guess Capra was like, no, no, don't worry, we'll fix some stuff and reshoots. And we should probably say, this movie was shot, I think it was October and November of 1941. And we all know what happens December 7th, 1941. So Capra is done with things as soon as he possibly can because he wants to go work for the war effort. This movie sat on the shelf for a long time. There was both the war that was happening and then also there was an agreement made because this play was going on in New York at the same time. They borrowed some of the actors from the play for this and then they said, while the play is still making all this money, there's an agreement that they could not release the film. So that's why it comes out. I think it's 43 it plays for the troops, 44 it comes out for the general public. So it feels a little off with things. And there's weird things, too, where they talk about like how the Mets won the pennant and stuff. And I, I don't know what baseball, but I guess that was like a predicting history kind of thing. Which is like way after the screwball had really wound down as well. I wanted to mention, I upset some Danny Kay fans a couple of weeks ago on here, or, or one in particular. And I just want to piss the Bob Hope fans off now because I can't bloody stand him. And he was the original choice for this role. So glad they couldn't get him out of his contract because... I can imagine Bob Hope in this. and I don't think he would have done very well. It wouldn't have. And back to the Cary Grant where he felt this was, he did too much in it. I think he did just enough. It was almost to the point of, you know, even if, I, and it's, if one scene in particular was when they, when the cops were fighting the, the brother. And then Carrie was trying to, you know, he's sitting there mumbling under his, he's like, he's like playing to the scene as they're fighting. I, I had to rewind and watch that scene like three times because it was so much going on with just Carrie Grant, like just him alone. And then when the phone came over to him, it was just a symmetry with him. I enjoy, I'm just like, I enjoyed the mumbling, the, how it just worked all in and everything, like things he was saying under his breath. It was so much fun. Like, oh my gosh. And he is still kind of playing it straight as well. I think Bob Hope would have just way overdone it, especially with the reactions. But in that scene, not to jump head too far, but he's just got that one liner when his brother gets knocked out. I wish I could relax like that. After all this thing, and I don't, not to attract any hate from Bob Hope fans, but no thanks, no thanks. I'm totally carry. I've been polite. I didn't say I want to punch him in the face this time. I was never really a Bob Hope fan until I saw my favorite brunette, and I think it's called The Lemon Drop Kid. Both of those I really enjoyed, but mostly I watched um, my favorite brunette because, of course, Peter Laurie's in it. So I was all about it. I do like that one with Jane Russell, the cowboy one. What's, what's that called? The pale face. But, but generally, no, Bob Hope's not for me. Well, by the time we were growing up, Bob Hope was just making those corny jokes. Yeah, he was considered old-fashioned. I mean, even he was too old-fashioned for my parents, you know, so he was he was corny. Whereas Cary Grant was never corny. He was always, Cary Grant has always been cool. No matter what era, he never fell into this sort of, you know, has been kind of sad sort of thing. 
you know, even at the end of his career when he's working with Hitchcock, he totally like reinvents himself. I just like it the, the way he's when you see him automatically, you just know he's supposed to be straight laced. You know, he's just going to play it, nothing comedic about him. He's just going to be a serious person. And then when something comedic does happen and he reacts to it, you're shocked. And then you're like, oh, my God, this he was actually being funny. And, you don't. it's unexpected. Even when you see him in other movies and he does the same thing It's still to me, it's always been I'm just surprised he can do comedy so well. Just because you don't expect them from the way he looks, he just doesn't look like the person that would be in comedy. Kind of like whenever I, I, I see currently now John Cena, whenever he's in comedy, I'm just like, I just can't believe he can hit it. And But then it's just the same kind of thing. I kind of get that same feeling like you should not be able to do comedy because you look too good. <laughs> You look too straight laced. He looks like a politician. You just think he's going to start saying a speech. And then he just does something comedic. And you're like, oh, my. And it was actually funny, not comedic accident, but comedic on purpose. It's just like, I love him. So when like seeing him in this one, it was just really it, I just enjoyed it. I know <laughs> good saying that, but it was. Just, and I don't even think I probably will get the ire of Bob Pope fans, too. I don't think he would have he would have played it as much. He would have been too comedic. And this was not a role. Mortimer was not, he was supposed to be a straight lace. He was supposed to be, you know, that's, that's what he was. He was serious about things and things are supposed to be that. And I don't think it would have played well. You need some sort of balance in there. So even though Carrie is ridiculous and he does ridiculous so well, we talked about it in the awful truth, his jealousy and how he has these little temper tantrums. He, because he's straight the rest of the time, it's just, it, it's great. It becomes really subtle. It, it makes it into an art film. And I think Bob Hope's too goofy, isn't he, Bob Hope? And that would have just been like, oh, just too much, especially at that speed as well. That much of Bob Hope goofy would have it would have been too much <laughs> and with a name like motormore you just you have to be straight laced <laughs> you have to be serious but i think he he pulled it off very well i don't think anyone else i was trying to think of other actors even with the re uh the other remakes it just didn't feel right until i saw it with Cary grant so it was just like okay yeah he really stuck this role We've talked a little bit about the code and um, how that affected these films. And this one was interesting because they really play up the whole thing of Mortimer and his bride being married at the beginning so that everything that they do is legit. But they're also rushing to consummate the marriage. So them in the back of the car and how the cab driver is like, oh, here's this brooch and here's this and here's this. It's like, how much of a state of undress was she in in the back of this cab, mister? <laughs> they then, also break the three-second kiss rule oh, as well yeah. by using it as a, a joke. That is, that's more like a 30-second kiss, which is bold. Oh, yeah, that thing behind the tree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> First, I forgot what era this film was in. And then I was like, why are they behind the tree? Like, why can't we see what's going on? And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I totally forgot. I was like, why do you got to go behind? How long are they going to be behind that tree? 
Yeah, when he starts talking about the look that's on his face and how she better get used to that look, and it's basically like, this is the face that I'm going to give you before we fuck. I was like, okay, <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is the thing with Capra, though, because people always go on about him being sentimental, and he kind of was, but... Th- like if you watch something like it happened one night, there's there's some there's some sexy stuff in that. There's some really sexy stuff in that with Gable and old. Um, well, Claudette Colbert showing her leg to get the car to stop. He could be saucy as well, but people always focus on that. You know, all American. Oh yeah, he was like you know sweet and all American, but some of his stuff was quite edgy. Even even um, it's a wonderful life, which he did after this. Uh, you know, which is probably one of the sweetest Christmas films ever, but it's about a guy trying to commit suicide. He's like verbally abusive to his family. <laughs> yeah, there's some real darkness in there. When, when his uncle loses the money, he's just like, yo, fool. You know, and it's just like, <laughs> you know, that's not what he really wanted to say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, Gloria Graham being a bit of a slut. It's amazing. Vile, Violet. He's so good. He's so good. The one character we haven't brought up is Teddy, the brother. And I like that Teddy's our introduction to insanity that's in this family. And I love that when Mortimer finds the the body in the window seat that he immediately is like, oh, it's Teddy. That I need to get Teddy uh, committed right away. And that becomes like his through line for the rest of the entire film is getting Teddy into a sanatorium, though he quickly finds out, oh, no, it wasn't Teddy. It was my dear aunts that have poisoned this man. And I love the revelation of these things. And especially like at first he finds out they killed this one person. And then when they're like, oh, no, no, this is our 12th. And just again, like each time he's given those looks and those reactions and just yeah. he's digging <laughs> his hole deeper and deeper with this but stuff. Him, and that's the thing I love about it because even though everyone is mad, they have this sort of shared love for one another. Uh, and he really doesn't want anything to happen to those aunts, even though they've like killed 12 people. And it's lovely, I just think it's absolutely lovely. He would do anything to avoid them getting arrested. But the whole like heredity thing, I feel like that became such a huge thing in the 60s and 70s in horror. But here we have something much earlier on, but from a director who's not necessarily associated with that. But that whole kind of spider baby generation and like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, these basically are the Sawyers and the spider baby family just generations before in this very sweet suburb, you know, come from these, what are they, like plantation owners or something? They're old money. And, you know, very well to do. They're like the two old ladies in the Waltons. What were they called? Those mad ants with the speakeasy. And they're so sweet. But it's like, you know, I I just started thinking about that, how that became just such a thing in horror, like later on, especially post-Texas Chainsaw, because it became the thing, wasn't it? Like, oh, we'll do the mad family. We'll do like the exploitation or we'll do like, you know, it's always been like a gothic thing anyway. So, like, to see it in here with comedy, I know there's, like, horror fans who would die hard. They absolutely hate horror comedy. I've never understood it because, to me, those two things go together hand in hand. They're perfect together always. But you do get these diehards who will refuse to accept anything 
that straddles comedy. And again, that's seen as a newish thing, you know, TCM2 or like Sam Raimi and Evil Dead and that whole generation. But horror comedy starts way before that. Even before that, they're doing the Abbott and Costello mashups, which I loved when I was a kid. I just... And and this kind of feels like a a bit of a, a succession of that by proxy. So they haven't quite got Boris Karloff, but they got that fucking amazing recurring Boris Karloff. Joke. That was hilarious. Yes. <laughs> Where did you get that face? Hollywood. Oh, it's just so good. I was laughing really hard, Kat, because we've got a wrong hat gag again in this movie. Yeah, right and after. A hat gag. Yeah. So good at a hat gag. Wearing the wrong hat. That's the whole thing. Someone needs to do a study on that. Wrong hats in 30s and 40s Hollywood. Oh, <laughs> and yeah, just like little little one-liners, little moments, like the whole thing with the cab driver just waiting outside the entire time. That's what I couldn't figure out. Like, why was he still waiting? It was They had turned the lights off in the house, <laughs> turned the lights back on, and he's just... <laughs> When Mortimer rushes out and he's just like, call me a cab. And the guy like hails another cab and he's like, wait, I'm a cab. The cab drive is a big thing in um, It's a Wonderful Life as well, isn't it? Was this like an affinity he had with cab drivers? What is the meaning of the cab driver? That's another study they need to do. That was just hilarious. Like it was like a running joke throughout the whole movie. That the cab driver was just sitting outside, even when his fiance came in, she's like, "Yeah, the cab's still waiting." <laughs> and this was hours, supposedly hours later. They had turned the lights off and turned the lights. They had gone to bed. The cab driver was still out, and I'm just like, "What is going on with this? Does he really need this tip this bad?" I, yeah, I just I thought that was just the most hilarious thing through the whole movie. The cab driver waited the whole time. I was just. Wow, that was cool. Didn't I read somewhere that Boris Karloff should have been in this, but couldn't? He get couldn't out get out of, the of play. it. Yeah, because he was he was in the actual play, right? And they said, uh, "We will give you Boris Karloff if you give us Humphrey Bogart," since this was a Warner Brothers film. And they said, "Yeah, no, we're not going to give you Humphrey Bogart." We'll use Raymond Massey. We'll go ahead and make him look like Boris Karloff, or at least like Frankenstein's monster. And then that they did get permission from Karloff for him to use that line about they made me look like Boris Karloff. But to hear Karloff say that. Yeah, he kind of does. I think Karloff would have been great in it. But Raymond Massey is just amazing because he's he's just you don't recognize him at all. And he is, again, playing it so straight. He's kind of menacing in it as well. Probably more menacing than Karloff would have been because Karloff could be really comedic but Karloff and Peter Laurie together are just absolute treasure so yeah I'm not criticizing Massey because he does an amazing job and you, you you forget but knowing they could have had Karloff and they could have had Karloff and they could have done the Karloff joke with Karloff would have been even better but that's not a criticism because Massey is is great in it of course but it's kind of sad that he, he wasn't able to do it did you notice that Raymond Massey never blinks in his close-ups? Yeah, he's really I creepy. On the second time, I saw that. I was just, what I yeah, that was really creepy. So when they cut to him and he's just there breathing and staring, I love. It's just like wow. 
he's terrifying, especially when he says about him, do you know, do you remember what I used to do to you when you, you know, it's just horrible, abusive. He talked! Yes, I talk. Mortimer, have you forgotten the things I used to do to you? When you were tied to the bedpost, the needles under your fingernails. Holy mackerel! It is Jonathan! I'm glad you remember, Mortimer. Yeah, I remember. How could I forget you? Where'd you get that face, Hollywood? He is a horrifying presence. Karloff would have brought a different energy to it because Karloff really loved to embrace camp when he did the more comedic stuff. And it would, I don't think Karloff would have been, even as Frankenstein's monster, Karloff is not really that sinister. Because there's always something about Karloff, like there's, he was such a lovely guy, I think, in real life, and apparently so generous, and he really loved his association with the genre, and everyone loved him. Part of that always comes through <laughs> in his roles, unfortunately. Massey was, he was so creepy and sinister and horrible in that bloody, it's like a leather face Boris Karloff mask. <laughs> with a scar on it and the fact that they just keep making a joke of this but he's like really unsettling and the way Cary Grant sort of when he does that double takes he realizes it's his brother that's really funny as well because he's like looking at is anybody in there he's sort of (laughs) (laughs) then it makes those moments where Massey is comedic even funnier like when he can't find the body of Dr. Spinoza or Mr. Spinoza and he's just like a surgeon of great distinction and something of a magician or when he and Cary Grant rush over to the window seat and sit there but then oh my god uh, yes <laughs> when Grant realizes what has just happened and just does that look and stands up like oh I've got something over on Jonathan now this is great <laughs> But you're right, Kat, this is totally a horror comedy. I've never really thought of it that way, even though we start with witches and black cats and all this kind of stuff in the opening credits, and it's all set on Halloween. You get that weird scene of the ants in the kitchen, and they're handing out jack-o'-lanterns to the kids. I was like, is that what you used to do, is hand out the actual pumpkins, not candy or anything? That's so strange. Yeah, that I thought that was really weird, because why would you give those to kids so they could throw them around the neighborhood? Like, it's like, oh, good, we get to go make a pumpkin pie. <laughs> right. Oh, Bobby's going to be so happy. <laughs> it is really creepy, though, the, the graveyard church are being right next to the door, and the way that some of it is shot, it is totally a... A horror comedy, just, uh, I think as Cary Grant is in it, it, it suddenly has a totally different association. But to me, you know, it's one of the best Halloween films ever made that's never been acknowledged. Like, I don't, I don't think I've even acknowledged it as a Halloween film before, but I, this time I've decided yes, it is. And, and probably, um, you know, probably one of the first Halloween films that references Halloween. So Halloween's a weird one because it's it's like the old pagan festival, but it's also like as the trick-or-treating, exclusively American. And so even within horror, there aren't actually many films that reference, directly reference Halloween. And you think there'd be like millions of them, but other countries don't make Halloween films because 
well, maybe now in Britain, in the last couple of decades, we've started to get Halloween. Like you guys get Halloween. First time I saw Halloween was in ET. I'm like, what the fuck is this? They get sweets. Like, what? <laughs> what did you do on Halloween before that, though? Nothing. No trick or treating. Nothing. No, no, no. And it, it and it was only my kids' generation. So in the nineties that you grant, like my own kid, my kids went trick or treating, and. Probably from the early 2000s, and now you see trick-or-treating, but people don't do their houses up like they do in America. Uh, they don't do their houses up. Like, you'll get the odd one, and I think that's something that's also starting to take off. But I see Americans moaning about their 25 aisles of Halloween decorations, and I'm like, we get, like, half a shelf in fucking Asda. Like, calm down. <laughs> How spoiled are you? No, it's an old pagan festival. So I think because of Halloween, like, when I was growing up, it became let's watch horror films because of the John Carpenter film. So that was like a bit of a tradition, but it was just for horror kids and the rest came later. So I never probably didn't pick up on it in, in as a kid or I know I was probably a teenager when I saw this one actually, but never really picked up on the Halloweeny elements because it didn't really have much meaning to me outside of something like a, a slasher. But yeah, it, I just n seemed to notice it more this time, I think, because um, me and Heather Drain were recently on a podcast discussing, specifically discussing how few Halloween-based actual films that you find where it's actually actively set at Halloween and you see like jack-o'-lanterns and trick-or-treating. And so it was in my mind. And I was like, hey, this is actually really cool. And these old ants really into the halloween thing you know they've got the little pumpkins going on you've got kids in masks it has to be i could be wrong somebody will probably write in and go in 1925 there was a like short all dedicated to halloween but as far as i know that's got to be the earliest cinematic reference to trick-or-treating someone will prove me wrong now <laughs> of course you know somebody's probably digging already <laughs> secretly listening and like, I'm going to prove her wrong. I grew up and we didn't celebrate Halloween at all. I don't think we even went to any kite. We didn't go trick-or-treating at all. My dad didn't do any dress up or anything. Uh, we we were not allowed to. Group. We need a support group. <laughs> so, so when I do see a Halloween theme in a movie, I'm very aware of it because I'm like, oh, okay, this is what people actually did because I never experienced it. So I can see how you could, yeah, that really does stand out. And I thought it was kind of creepy when it was coming in and I saw the titles and I was like, well, why do I got to point out Halloween? Like, what what does this have to do with arsenic and Olay? <laughs> and I just thought it was just so weird. And then I was like, okay. And I knew about the graveyard, but then I'm like, it just felt when they pointed Halloween and then it was by a graveyard, for some reason, the film got really creepy to me, like even more creepier because they said it was Halloween. Like, oh, and it was it still boggled me. I, even as I saw the kids with the, the pumpkins that really blew my mind, like, OK, now they're just being ridiculous. It was just really weird how, you know, they intertwine the Halloween theme the film could have carried itself as a horror comedy with even without mentioning it, but just mentioning it that it was near Halloween. It just made this even more creepier. Like, OK. And I and, and but then when you're seeing how how they got away with all the stuff, 
and you can understand why the cops didn't take it all seriously. You know, it it, kind of makes sense because, yeah, we got pranks going on all over the place. We don't need all this mess. It's one of our busiest nights. We're running around, you know, catching people. We don't have time for this because you're like, in reality, you're like, no, the cops wouldn't do all this. This is is ridiculous. But then it kind (laughs) of made sense. Like, of course they wouldn't do it. This is one of the busiest nights of the year for them. You're going to be like, oh, whatever. Okay, let's just get this stuff done and get on to the next call. So That is a good point. I was just sat here thinking while you were talking, oh, my God, you know, you've got Halloween night. is set in the process of one night where this crazy man comes home. And, and it's like, you know, is this the precursor to Michael Myers? And he's also wearing a weird uh, celebrity lookalike face. True, yeah. They made me look like William Shatner. It all makes sense. <laughs> it does. This is it. This is the first Halloween. I, I just also realized I'm probably talking shit because I'm pretty sure some of those Universal Wolfman films are set around Samhain at least. But keep that other crap in though. I'll live with the crap. <laughs> mainstream. I used to be a mainstream film that uses Halloween. I love these ants. They're so nice and so sweet. And I love when, uh, I think it's Aunt Abby, when she goes back into the kitchen and she does this like little trot kind of thing that she's doing. It's just yeah. all their little physical movements that they do, I think are just wonderful. And I love, they're like Chip and Dale to me, the the cartoon characters from Disney where it's like, oh no, after you, no, no, indubitably, you know, just this whole like, <laughs> well, I know that it's my turn to say the service, but you killed this man. So really it's your right to do the service. <laughs> I, I like how excited she got. When the aunt told her, I had to do it while you were away. I'm sorry. And there, she's apologizing. And she was like, and then, then she was like, do you want to see it? And she's like, oh, my God. And she, she does that little dip. And she's like dipping down. And I was like, what? She was so excited to see the body. Like, oh, my goodness. I just I just fell over. I thought, I was like, they are right in the head. But I like them. They're lovable, though, aren't they? You can't help. But, but love them because they're so, they're just so lovely and sweet. And they have that whole thing going on that I'm weirdly obsessed with, but no one else cares about. It's <laughs> this like specifically American Gothic thing. And it comes out of this book called Wheeland by Charles Brockton Brown, which I'll say it again. I swear Stephen King read before he did The Shining. But this thing is all about this guy. He's grown up with this in this like um, shadow of what he thinks is a family curse. His dad was a preacher, apparently spontaneously combusted because he was so divine or whatever. And this guy thinks he's inherited this sort of connection to God and hears voices that tell him to kill his family to save them from sin or from their own sin so he feels like he's saving them which is like you know jack torrance in the shot like, i swear i swear it's, it's totally in the shining but then it becomes like a thing in american gothic this uh and it's not a huge thing but this idea of people killing people for their own good 
in this, uh, you know, like it, it's most extreme. You get the centerfold girls with old Andrew Prime killing glamour models because he feels like he's saving them. And they are totally in this thing. Like they, they are totally, they totally believe that they are providing a good service, saving these lonely gentlemen with no family. Like they are totally doing them a favor by offing them. Uh, and there's not an evil bone in there, but like some of the people in this kind of trope, the characters you get stuck in, they're, they're insane. They're like psychopathic. They're delusional and they're violent and they're aggressive. But these old ladies are like the opposite of that. They are just so sweet and so into what they're doing. And again, it's like linked to this whole family tree thing, which Whelan did. And then it, comes down through Poe, like Escher, and it, this whole idea of your relatives being like whole trees of that. I feel like that's a specifically American Gothic thing. Like it's specifically to do with America. I don't know what you guys are drinking over there, but it's definitely your theme. Look, I probably should have told you this before, but you see, well, insanity runs in my family. It practically gallops. Oh, darling, just because Teddy's a little strange, that doesn't... Oh, no, darling, no, no, it's way back before Teddy. No, this goes back to the first Brewster, the one who came over on the Mayflower. Yeah. You know, you know how in those days the Indians used to scalp the settlers? Well, he used to scalp the Indians. Because when Weenham was written, it was, it was kind of addressing a lot of these new world themes like he, they couldn't do old gothic in a map well, i know poe tried poe really wrote uh, european gothic but they couldn't do like the old castles and the things like that that europe had so it was like fear of the savage fear of the outside fear of the ungodly or religious mania which is like one of my flat out favorite themes in all film and literature religious mania being a pagan i love to see the biblicals turn like, I just love it. <laughs> well, it's like, I wonder what their, the father did, like the father of Abby and or either the father or the brother, I'm trying to remember, but how when Jonathan comes in, he's just like, you know, oh, you still wear your collar so high where grandfather's acid burned you. And I was just like, oh, right. man. <laughs> Yeah, like, what did they do? Yeah, you gotta wonder about, yeah, because that shook me about it, because I didn't even hear that part until the second time I was listening to it. And I was like, wait a minute. And then they went in about, like, what the grandfather did, or the great-great-grandfather did, you know, the scalping of the Indians and and all of that. And I'm like, did this, like, <laughs> pass down generation of like literally they they get so well at killing people like you know no one noticed but but then you got to go back to that first sentence when the cops were walking by the house and then they say they take in the borders the uns take in the borders and the one of the cops says yeah but they take in like some certain types of borders they they handle certain types of borders. Like, was it an unwritten rule that this family takes care of unwanted people? Like people, like they really secretly knew <laughs> something because they never bring it back up again or the cops never say anything about it. Then you just got I sat there and I'm like wondering. And, you know, since I do write suspense, I, you know, I'm picking up all of these red herrings. So I'm like, where is this coming from? Like, like you just send people over here like, oh, go to this boarding house. <laughs> They'll take care of you. 
you know, they, they're helping the cops. So I just, you know, you kind of wonder, like, was this like an unwritten rule for this family to take care of people? And they knew how crazy they were. So they were just like, oh, let it go. Let it go. <laughs> so strange. Yeah. And they talk about how they're set for life with uh, money. Uh, they don't have to worry about money. And I'm like, okay. And I, I can't remember if it's in this one or another, because I've watched three versions of this now. They talk about in one part um, how the grandfather had perfected poisons uh for maybe insecticide or something because they that's why that was the tony randall one the i think it was they've got access to all that arsenic and that all of those poisons that they poison the elderberry wine with and i was like oh okay now it kind of makes sense they're great though aren't they 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 got so much industry in that herbal thing like you know the way they got their little combinations of the way she like reels off the recipe and like oh yeah we tried it in tea but it doesn't really work in tea because you can taste it like like they've got this whole kind of industry going where they've got it down to perfection it's funny too because they can't have any teetotalers come in you know it's like everybody that they have come to their place has to drink the wine basically and they're just handing out the wine immediately like that one guy comes in and they're just like oh you don't have any family and oh you're you're not feeling that well and you're lonely okay well here have this wine i was like wow you guys don't wait at all Right. No warm-up, no foreplay, no, hey, get, they don't, before he even sits down, they offering him the wine. It's just like, oh, no, you don't even need to see the house. You just sit down right here. <laughs> I'm just like, wow, no, you know, warm me up first. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, that was pretty got that like yeah dark <laughs> pretty dark but then it spoke about like how their family has always been i mean grandpa scalped right away you know <laughs> just let's get it over with <laughs> it's like totally normal to them though isn't it and and the one who appears the most crazy is actually the least harmful Oh, Teddy, who just runs upstairs with a bugle and shouts. He's he's fairly, like, benign, but the rest of the family are, like, absolutely crazy dangerous. And he's, like, the most sort of least lethal one in the whole bunch. He's, like, fairly harmless. It's so good, though, how they link all that in. And like I said, that's, like, a, such a gothic, American gothic-y thing to have families that are kind of infested with this weird morality and then you see it in spider baby which is one of my favorite films of all time and you've got the same thing there where a family they're just so nuts or the texas chainsaw family they're just so nuts they don't realize they're nuts like that saying you know if you think you're mad or not these people just don't think they're insane at all even the way they treat the the uncle the brother when they go on, oh, he can't be a Washington. You know, we tried him as a Washington, and he went like, <laughs> but but they're accepting. At least they're accepting in that way. You know, they don't make him feel like a freak. They're like, they accommodate his his need to be some politician, and they have this whole thing about him. You know, yeah, no, we can't do that. You know, he didn't come out from under the bed, and he didn't want to be anybody. <laughs> That's the way they say it. But it's kind of weird because, like, 
you like people yearn to be part of a really close knit family and and to understand their you know idiosyncrasies, and then the only place you see where family is family and they support each other is in horror movies. <laughs> Like the and that's kind of sick and morbid, but like you're like, I want a family like that. Like, why can't they support my dreams? They support his, and he wears a mask and chainsaws people. Like, wow, all I want to do is just paint. <laughs> but Jonathan has gone a bridge too far. You know, they can't handle having Jonathan and Dr. Einstein there. Right, he crossed the line. He crossed the line by bringing unknown unknown people killing in, into the house. You can't do that. A <laughs> foreigner. How dare they bring a foreigner in? And I love oh, yeah, how they're that. just so up in arms. You can tell can't you? Because it's got that, like, where they have that, like, scare of anybody vaguely European, which is how Peter Laurie just uh, ended up. <laughs> it's like the villain <laughs> in a shady character in everything. Bless him. He's always scared me. He, he would well, not scare me, but creep me out. In every movie he's ever been, he's just, even when he's played a nice person, it just, it's just so creepy, no matter what he does. <laughs> oh, I love him so much. When it, just every single line reading that he has in this whole movie, every physical gesture, I mean, just like, not to Melbourne Method, please. Two hours. And, and then when it was all over, what? The fellow in London was just as dead as the fellow in Melbourne. I just thought for sure he was just going to hunch down at any moment. Just I don't know why. I just hunch and say your lines. I don't know why. It's just like, yeah, he was pretty good. When the cops are reading out the description of Jonathan and then his accomplice, and he's just standing there. Oh, the like, look on his oh. face. Yeah. And when he puts his <laughs> hands up, and then uh, James Gleason comes over and shakes the one hand, I was like, uh, and his, the look of relief on his face as he just scoots right out of there. <laughs> let me let me leave now. <laughs> And I, I love James Gleason as the police lieutenant. He always shows up and stuff, and he's so great. He's just so angry all the time. And just even though he, I, I, I love how all of the cops defend the sisters to the death, they would defend these sweet old ladies. And even he knows, like, these old ladies are on the up and up. How dare you talk bad about them? They are, though. They're the ants in the Waltons, aren't they? The old bloody bootleggers are the same sort of thing. That everybody loves those ants, even though in the Waltons, you know, it's supposed to be in Prohibition, but they're making, what was it, their, their daddy's recipe and they're getting everybody illegally drunk, but nobody will have anything bad said about them because, you know, they're the two little old spinsters. And, and they're, they're definitely like a precursor to that because they're just so lovely. Everyone loves them. Like everyone's just like, leave them alone. Like they just can't believe that whole thing about the bodies and that. But even Mortimer will defend them to the death, which is wonderful. Like he just will do anything to protect them. And then you find out they've taken him in and he's not even related to them. You just think, Oh, that is just so lovely. They just took in this poor stray kid, like kid that was going to get dumped. He's the son of a sea cook. Yeah, son of a sea cook. <laughs> Which I love, and we'll talk about this a little bit more after the break. The whole thing, I guess the original line that actually stayed from the very first version of this, because the the original version of this play was 
vastly different than what ended up on Broadway and then what ended up here in this movie. But the original line was, I'm not a Brewster, I'm a bastard. And of course, you could not say that in the movies in 1944. No. I think I'm the son of a sea cook is actually as good as I'm a bastard. (laughs) So let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with two interviews. First up, we'll hear from Joseph McBride, author of Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, and frankly, Unmasking Frank Capra. And after that, we'll hear from Charles Dennis, author of the upcoming book, There's a Body in the Window Seat, The History of Arsenic and Old Lace. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli? I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the Vintage Video Podcast, we'll be reviewing every single wide release of the 1980s in chronological order. Over 250 episodes to enjoy and thousands more to come. John enters the store now to order another can of ether. I picture him outside like Homer with the gasohol. <laughs> when for you, when for me. I also like to think about it, that the kids renew their vow not to talk about the murder. By, by murdering someone. <laughs> <laughs> They're taking a blood oath with someone else's blood. This stuff is seven times more powerful than uranium. And yeah. they, they open up the vault that it's contained in, not wearing any kind of protective nope. gear. Yeah. And it's wooden crates. Wooden crates. It's like the guys in Chernobyl picking up the graphite rocks yeah. and going, man, because there's rocks. Hugging the elephant foot. <laughs> just like, oh, this thing's smooth. It's so warm. He turns to dial the number from the classified ad without even thinking about the numbers. <laughs> we know this because we can hear his thoughts. And he's talking about how AJ was right that ninjas are misdirecting him. They're misdirecting him. I really wish that he'd turn to the phone and been like, six, six, five. Vintage Video. We're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you... 
if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. Justin McBride, thank you so much for stopping by today. I'm very curious, what was the first Frank Capra film you saw? You know, I can't remember exactly the first. I, I know that I was deeply impressed by Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and I still am. I think that's his best film. When I talked to Capra, which I did for long time for my book, Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success. He admitted to me that was his best film in his opinion. He, he, he always told people it was a wonderful life because that's what they wanted to hear. But I said, what was it about Mr. Smith that you think has made it your best? He said, it's bigger. It's a film about our country. And I, I agree. Uh, and I have some uh, problems with Mr. Uh, with uh, Wonderful Life that we could get into, but I think uh, Mr. Smith is a great screenplay by Sidney Buckman and, uh, Tremendous performances by uh, Jimmy Stewart and Gene Arthur, and it is a fascinating film about America. It's very patriotic and yet very critical of the United States, uh, the corruption of the system as well. And it teaches us a lot about how the system works because the central character is very naive. And uh, Gene Arthur, as the secretary, um, is the person who really knows how the government functions. He doesn't even know, and she she fills him in, and she fills the audience in uh, in a very entertaining way about how a bill is written. And she's very cynical and jaded, and uh, she becomes more idealistic as it goes on. You begin to wonder, how come this person isn't a senator? And it's a feminist film in that sense, as Capra's 30s films are. His women, one thing I liked about them is the women always had jobs, which wasn't true in a lot of 30s films. A lot of 30s films, the women lounge around in beautiful outfits, and, and uh, you know that's all they do. But uh, in Capra films, they're reporters and, and uh, secretaries and, uh, and all kinds of interesting jobs. And Jean Arthur's character was a working woman. She told me she turned down It's a Wonderful Life because she, uh, the woman was a housewife, and she didn't. She said there was nothing for me to do. Uh, she she thought it was a dull character. Capra's films after the war, when he let his latent conservatism uh, dominate his films, um, there was a drive in the government to make women go back to the, the house after working during the war. And uh, so his women became housewives and, and uh, generally less interesting. When we talked forever ago, we were talking about how my experience was going to school and having Citizen Kane taught to me all the time versus when you were going to school, it was not part of the canon, as it were. So where was Capra at as far as what he was viewed like when you were going to school and initially seeing these? Yeah, in my in my generation, the late 60s, we were the ones who followed Truffaut and Andrew Saris in, in championing American films. 
as being worthy of study. And I remember we only had three film courses at the University of Wisconsin. Two were pretty good, but there was a third one taught by a male model who didn't know anything about movies, uh, almost literally. And one time he came in and this is a film history class. And he said, well, this week we're going to talk about American movies. And he said, I went to the library to study up on American movies. And I've, he's looking at his book. He says, I found a book by somebody named Andrew Saris, and he seems to like a director named Howard Hawks. You know, like he really, he was just learning about these people for the first time. And But I was running a campus film society, and uh, there were 35 film societies. We showed all kinds of films. We were very into American films as well as foreign films. Uh, Although when I ran the Wisconsin Film Society, we had to make a profit to to stay solvent. And to make a profit, I would show films like a Fellini movie or Bergman movie, and so I could pay for showing uh, Ford and uh, Capra and and Wilder movies, etc., which had less of an audience, that's true, uh, but we developed a following for them. Uh, Capra was very big at the time because It's a Wonderful Life. It, It was just becoming a cult film. Uh, as a lot of viewer listeners know, there, there was a quirk uh, that the uh, Paramount acquired the film and didn't renew the copyright. And so uh, it was being shown all the time on television and had a revival of interest. And Capra had come out with his autobiography, The Name Above the Title, in 1971, which is a very beguiling, mostly charming book, although it has some some nasty passages, but it's uh, uh, it beguiled people, including me, into thinking, well, this this is a very honest book and um, you know, very interesting guy. And he, he had a whole new career going to college campuses. He went to about 150, and he was he was um, very beloved by the young students because he presented himself falsely as a liberal uh, humanist, which he was not because that's what they wanted to hear and he had a rebirth and uh, so it stimulated interest in his other films and so i began watching them and i, I really en- enjoyed them and i still do actually after you know i had a lot of um, bad experiences writing frank Capra: the catastrophe of success i had a four-year legal battle trying to get that out with um, janine basinger his archivist at wesleyan university and Bob Gottlieb, the esteemed editor at Knopf, who was my editor on the book originally, he and Janine Basinger tried to stop the book or, or neuter the book. They had a plan to issue the book um, over my objections with uh, a lot of the political content cut out, and I stopped them. I spent four years of my life uh, battling them, and I won, and I got it over to Simon & Schuster, who published it in, in an uncorrupted form, although I had to cut out Capra's unpublished writings, which Janine Basinger had promised me I could use, and then she reneged on the promise. Um, but um, I was able to quote his unpublished letters and memos that he wrote when he was a government employee, which are public domain. But anyway, the book came out. It was uh, it was the book I wanted to to write, and then I did a just about three years ago. I did a six hundred page book called "Frankly Unmasking Frank Capra" about how I how I discovered the true Capra and, and the battle I fought to get it out. But that, that happened later. I didn't start writing the biography until, until 1984. And uh, I, I had met him. Uh, the, the key moment for me, I think, in 1975, I was working for Daily Variety. And it was a wonderful job. It was kind of my film school. That and Orson Welles is the other side of the wind, which I was acting in for five years as uh, but I, on the variety job i got to go on film sets which is great you can't do that as easily anymore and i also got to interview all the directors and writers i wanted to meet from the golden age and they were 
mostly around and, and happy to talk. And so I went down to see Capra at his home in uh, La Quinta. He and I went to uh, a uh, country club in Palm Springs for lunch. And he was very, doing his charming routine. He was talking about how he hated bankers and rich people. And right, right at that moment, a guy came to the table, you know, in a sport coat and tie, and he had a bunch of photos to show Frank Capra of Capra playing golf with President Ford. And um, I'll, uh, one picture was just priceless. It was Capra putting and the president holding the pin for him, you know, like a caddy. And I thought that's the ultimate immigrant dream. Capra was an immigrant from Sicily that the president holds, holds the pin for you. I had been a golf caddy, so I appreciated that. And uh, Capra was saying, oh, isn't he, aren't these wonderful? Jerry's such a great guy. And uh, he told me later, he said, Jerry, Jerry is so funny when he plays golf. His ball goes all over the place. Uh, one of the Ford was an athlete, but he was clumsy. And one of the things that happened was he would bean people with golf balls when he hit them, you know, <laughs> out uh, off the course. Anyway, so then uh, the guy said, okay, Frank, I'll make copies of these for you. See you later. And then Capra turned to me and he said, where was I? I said, oh, yeah, I was telling you how I hate bankers and rich people. And he launched back into the routine without a hitch. And I thought, hmm, this guy is not the man he claims to be. There's a, a stark contradiction here. He, he's um, uh, very part of the upper class. Uh, you know, he started as a working class guy and he worked his way up and he loved hobnobbing with um, the top, top brass in our society. And the rich, he identified with the rich people. He, it was, he, he had $5 million when, when he died and he claimed he was the poorest director you ever saw. He told the Washington post, which was one of his many lies. So I made a mental note, um, after that lunch, find out more. <laughs> and then I did the Frank Capra Life Achievement Award tribute for the AFI. I was the writer was uh, George Stevens Jr., the producer. And, and I, I got to know a lot of Capra uh, co-workers, which was very revealing because I found out things about him that were different from his image. But I also spent a lot of time with Capra because George said very correctly, he said, the show will rise and fall on the strength of Capra's acceptance speech because he's not a good public speaker. He was kind of halting and inarticulate. And we had had him on our Jimmy Stewart tribute, and he came in with a, a, a terrific speech that he wrote, which Lee Strasberg later said was the best definition of film acting he'd ever heard, which was a high compliment. But Capra read it with his head down, and you could see his bald head gleaming, and you couldn't see his eyes very well, and uh, it was not very good TV angle. And George said, we have to think about this. So I, I worked out a way that we would have a good camera angle, good lighting. And I, I said, why don't we tape it that afternoon? So we have a backup. We can intercut it if he stumbles. And we started doing that on all the shows because it worked really well. And we intercut the two because speaking before a thousand people is very daunting and, and people uh, stumble and might forget some you know, lines or bobble lines, but actually we wound up using a lot of the live thing because it was spontaneous and fun. But anyway, I spent two months with Capra down in um, his home in La Quinta. He and I wrote the speech together. I didn't realize he had a ghostwriter. He didn't tell me. I found out later in his papers, but he would say, here's my, you know, draft and I would suggest things. And, and then we rehearsed it over and over and over. He was very cooperative and, and uh, I kind of, guided him and one thing that was very telling he brought in a uh, uh some uh, uh, lines that said i'll tell you the secret of the whole thing uh, the secret of frank capra's 
films is um, two basic things, the love of people and the equal importance of every human being. He said, that's the formula upon which I've based all my films. And I said, well, that's good, except wouldn't principles sound better than formula? He said, oh, okay, sure, great. So he said, that's the principle. You know, formula uh, is actually true. It was a formula to him, not a principle. And I kind of regret now that I didn't let him say what he actually wanted to say, because he was telling the truth. It was not something he uh, intellectually at least cared about. He viscerally could relate to the ordinary person, but he looked down a lot on um, the masses of people. And if you notice in Capra's films, he valorizes uh, so-called common men. But he said once, and it was telling, quote, uh, I didn't think he was a common man. I thought he was a hell of a guy, the characters in his films. And they're not actually so common. You know, like Jimmy Stewart runs a statewide newspaper in Mr. Smith and Mr. Deeds, Gary Cooper is a factory owner, etc. But they they have they help the common man, and uh, but in reality, in the films, when the common men all get together as a mass, they become dangerous in Capra films. They become mobs. That shows his fear of the common man, which is a rather Republican uh, attitude. And I I found out that he was he boasted to the government in 1951 that he had voted Republican, straight Republican, since 1920 when he first started voting, which meant that he voted for. Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover twice, Alf Landon, Wendell Wilkie, um, Thomas E. Dewey twice. I mean, it's astounding. Here's a guy who is considered the, the, the New Deal filmmaker, and he, he votes for Herbert Hoover? I mean, you know, and he, he told me he hated Franklin D. Roosevelt, and I said, why did you hate Franklin D. Roosevelt? And he said, I hated him because he was a rich kid. And Claudette Colbert told me that there was a... Um, dinner party she went to with Capra and he was railing against Roosevelt during the New Deal period because Life magazine had run a spread of pictures of Roosevelt uh, through his life and they had a picture of him as a boy in a kind of little Lord Fauntleroy costume you know he's a very rich kid and he's he's in a little pony cart and Capra was saying well when he was doing this I was selling newspapers and Colbert said well what a psychologist could do with that you know and uh uh, that I was the you know, but I, I really think his hatred of Roosevelt was because of the very high tax rate during the New Deal, taxing the rich, and it was so high. Today, people would freak out if they had to pay eighty or ninety percent of their taxes, but it was you know spreading the wealth. And Capra was extremely rich; he made over a million dollars in 1938, which is astonishing. Very few people in America made that kind of money, but it was, a lot of it was going to the government. He resented that, and it wasn't until Reagan came in that. Reagan started slashing the taxes on the rich, and Capra was a big Reagan champion. Anyway, that's so. So when I started writing my book, I was fully aware that Capra was not the man he claimed to be, and I was ready to tell that story. You talked a little bit about the themes, or let's say the formula that he liked to play with. I'm curious where you see those coming up the most. Just to give an example of the schism between the man and the the films, and then we can get into the films in more detail, because I I still like his films. It's it's interesting, because after finding out who he was and all the contradictions, I still think he's a great filmmaker, but I have very specific, more clear views of what his talents were. In American Madness was his first film that had a strong political theme, uh, Platinum Blonde was really the emergence of the Capra Common Man theory. Uh, 
Robert Riskin, he wrote the, the final script. And Robert Williams, who's a fine actor who died, unfortunately, right before the premiere. He would have been a star otherwise. But he plays a newspaper man who marries a rich woman. And he's uncomfortable in the world of the rich. And uh, that's a, kind of a forerunner to Mr. Uh, Deeds Goes to Town which is a lovely film and very powerful. And it's been used by various people for different political reasons. Some left-wing writers at the time said that Capra was a left-winger or a communist even. And then Ronald Reagan quoted a speech that Gary Cooper gives in court. Reagan used it to justify his uh, killing of a lot of New Deal programs. So it can be read different ways, which is one of the interesting paradoxes of Capra. But uh, in American Madness, 1932, made after Platinum Blonde, uh, one of the lies Capra tells in his book is that he and Riskin concocted this story about a populist banker who loans money on character rather than collateral. And this was based on the Giannini brothers who founded the Bank of Italy, which became the Bank of America. And the reason this film was made, 1932, the depths of the Depression, banks were failing right and left, and a quarter of the country was unemployed, and the capitalist system was in deep jeopardy. And during the campaign, Roosevelt proselytized for a fluid currency, which meant a lot of people were afraid to put their money in banks because banks failed. There was no protection for, for the depositor, as there would be later when Roosevelt came in with the FDIC. But uh, people people were hoarding their money under their mattresses and tin cans and stuff. And Roosevelt said, put your money in banks, have confidence in the banks, spread it around, and your neighbor can borrow, you can borrow, etc. And that was the um, Roosevelt plan. But Hoover was against that, and Capra was against that. Edward Barnes, who was his sound man, who was a great source of mine, said he had a unique position because he had the microphone over the actors and Capra and he could hear what they were saying to each other. And he said, Adolf Manju and Capra would, um, he overheard them bad mouthing Roosevelt and uh, his economic policies. And so Capra was actually against the fluid currency and he was keeping his money in his mattress. Uh, during that time, he was making a film telling you the opposite. That was a, a fascinating example of a director who didn't believe what his films were saying. So uh, I found out Capra had nothing to do with the screenplay because it was written. Uh, Robert Riskin was assigned by Harry Cohn to go out and interview um, uh, Doc Giannini, who was the lender for the motion picture industry. And, and uh, Bank of America was uh, Columbia's biggest backer. And if they went under, Columbia might go under. That's why they made the film. And uh, Riskin, who is a liberal Jewish screenwriter from New York, uh, champion of the New Deal, wrote this fine script. And then Capra was on his honeymoon at the time. It had nothing to do with it. And then he, uh, the film started shooting with Alan Dwan directing it. And Edward Barron said, Alan Dwan, who despite being a fine director in many films, uh, he said he didn't quite seem to be uh, up to par, didn't know what he was doing. And so Cohn fired him, replaced him for one day with Roy William Neal while he was looking around. And then he, then Capra was called in. They shut down for a week, and Capra changed the set. And Burns said, this is when I started realizing what great motion picture directing is. And Capra made the set a two-level set so he could have you know contra visual contrasts uh, between uh, the banker up above and the people down below, et cetera. And uh, the dynamism of the mise-en-scene was... Uh, noticeable right away and capper made a very exciting film but the only addition he made to the uh, story was the the bank robbery which is done purely visually it's a tour de force non-verbal 
uh, scene. But anyway, Capra had to claim credit for that because that's where his themes came in with Riskin, who was really the author of Frank Capra's films. And that's a controversial comment because even in Capra's lifetime, there was a dispute, uh, angry dispute between Capra and people who said Riskin and other writers deserved equal credit, if not more. And I, I believe that's true. Um, but so Capra had to lie about it. That was very significant. So, but Riskin and Capra created this so-called formula, which is, you know, a little guy against the system. Although again, you know, a bank president is not exactly a common man, but he was, he, he, he you know, he, he identified with common people and helped them. And he was a populist. The populist movement had some good qualities and some negative qualities like xenophobia and anti-Semitism and, but they were anti-banks, et cetera. But this was a paradox of a, a, a lovable banker, you know, and that's kind of captures some of the Capra paradox that he was, as people said, um, Mr. D's goes to town kind of showed you the good side of the capitalist system. He was a benevolent capitalist. Raymond Durniat said it was a Republican film that was uh, kind of valorizing a, a uh, a liberal banker. And I think that's, that's true. And one of the interesting things about that film, he inherits 20 million and he starts giving it to the poor and he's accused of being insane because of that, because he's, he's benevolent, but he keeps 2 million for himself. He's not stupid. You know, uh, Capra's heroes, as, as Claude Rains says of Jimmy Stewart, and Mr. Smith, uh, this boy's um, honest, not stupid. And uh, so Gary Cooper is still a millionaire, but he gives away a lot of his money, which is very admirable. And he helps all these people. And it's, it's kind of a model for how enlightened uh, plutocrats should behave during the New Deal. So it's, it, you know, it's got things for both sides. And I noticed that in Capra's films and a lot of critics before I came along were sort of confused by the ideological confusions in the Capra films, that there would be a scene that seemed very left-wing and then a right-wing kind of scene in the middle of the road scene. And what they didn't realize was the writers were responsible for that. And uh, Chester Stitch, who was my best source, I think, uh, he was Capra's secretary for 39 years, his right-hand man. And uh, like he, he typed the scripts that Capra and Riskin wrote and he was always around. And he observed that one of the things that made Capra great in his heyday was he, he had a brain trust of a wide range of political views uh, from communists, uh, progressives on the left to liberals, middle of the road people, and then right wing people. He would listen to all of them and he would draw ideas from all of them and kind of amalgamate them in his films. And he was open to listening to people, which is a good sign for an executive or a director. And, and then later, after the war, when the Red Scare came in, Capra was accused of being subversive, and which is really terrible and stupid because nobody was more patriotic than Frank Capra, and we can get into that. But um, he was accused of uh, associating with a lot of left-wing writers, which is actually true. And, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington's writer, Sidney Buckman, was actually a member of the Communist Party when he wrote that film, which is an interesting uh, paradox. Uh, I asked one of Buckman's friends how a communist could write such a patriotic film, and he said, well, he was an American communist. I thought that was a great line. But the, the Communist Party of the U.S. in that period, because the war was coming, the war with fascism, they wanted to unite everybody behind the war. And Roosevelt was having a hard time rousing the isolationist nation 
to to being against uh, Hitler. And so their slogan, Communist Party slogan, was capital uh, communism is 20th century Americanism. And they were stressing the Bill of Rights. They wanted to say, this is the bedrock of our country. And that's what Mr. Smith is all about, is the Bill of Rights, especially the First Amendment, freedom of speech. And so uh, there's no paradox of Buckman writing a uh, uh, patriotic film, but it's also very critical of the corruption of Congress and America became controversial for that reason. That's one reason it's good. But after the war, Capra came under suspicion for his social criticism in those films. And then he blamed the writers. He kind of basically said, the writers made me do it. You know, and ironically, later in his life with his book and his public appearances, he was claiming all the credit. But to the government, I found out in my research, he, he informed on a bunch of his colleagues, mostly writers, and uh, he informed on Sidney Buckman, Michael Wilson, Hugo Butler, uh, Ian McClellan Hunter, and others, uh, and uh, basically blamed them for the political content of his films. And that was a big shock. I found that out in my research for the AFI show. I went to Wesleyan University and I, I, with my reporter's instinct, I knew I had a great story uh, when I found this out. Uh, in Capra's biography, there's a jarring passage when, in 1951 where he goes to India to represent the State Department at a film festival. And it becomes a very strident passage in his book, very anti-communist and kind of different in tone from the book. And I kind of thought something must have happened there. So when I went to Wesleyan, they hadn't even opened the boxes. Ginian Basinger let me open the boxes where they're... And I said, could I see the box for 1951? Because I sensed that something happened. So within 10 minutes, I had the basic story. I found this document Capra wrote for the government in 1951 when he was accused of being possibly subversive. And he was working for a think tank of the Defense Department called Project Vista, which was planning World War III strategies for Europe, which is actually very timely. And I actually uh, went to the National Archives at one point, and I said, could I see the Project Vista report? And they said, well, it's classified, but if you ask for it, we'll, we'll give it to you this afternoon. <laughs> and so I, I actually got this declassified. Nobody had ever asked for it. And it had a lot of cockeyed strategies for fighting the, the, the Soviets. But Capra was supposed to be the head of psychological warfare. Anyway, his security clearance was revoked because of accusations made against him. And he was... Uh, understandably very shocked that his government would would kick him in the teeth like that it was a terrible blow after he served in world war ii as a propaganda filmmaker and nobody nobody loved america more than frank capra as a lot of immigrants do they they really love the freedoms of america and capra was a great exponent of that and um so he was angry and bitter and he lashed out that was his uh, darwinian philosophy if somebody attacks you you attack them and he did that with harry langdon in the silent period he did it again with his colleagues and he, he was a secret informer but he kept it secret unlike yulia kazan for example who was very open about it so nobody knew all those years the capra's informer and i found out and i was sitting on this i knew a big story and then i made the mistake of telling janine basinger oh i found this important document and so she she hid the document and she tried to block the book because that's the basic revelation but i also found out that almost everything in capra's book was false the only things that checked out basically were his date of birth and the date that the ship left for america i checked those out just to make sure 
took a lot of doing, but uh, I really invented the wheel in Capra's scholarship because all the, all the books about him were pretty much based on what he said his life was, which was all false. So they had to kind of scramble and rethink their premises. But at the end of the day, I still like his films because I still, I think I understand them or I understand their contradictions and I appreciate what he did bring to them, which I concluded he was not a particularly good visual stylist. That was really his cinematographer, Joe Walker, who shot 20 of his films before and after Joe Walker. His films are undistinguished visually, but the Walker films are, are terrific. He had a sense of pacing, Capra did. Those editors deserve some credit for that. But the stories and the screenplays were mostly due to other people. But Capra was a great director of actors. And he would bring out the best qualities that other people hadn't seen in people like Gary Cooper and Clark Gable and Jean Arthur. And although Jean Arthur, you know, one of the myths about her, she became his favorite actress. She had just done The Whole Town's Talking for John Ford, which was written by Joe Swirling and Robert Riskin, who were two of Cap Capra's writers. It's sort of a Capra-esque film. And, and she's fully formed as a star in that film. And Capra falsely claimed he saw her in rushes for a western and it's just not true because she hadn't made a western around that time but she believed it when i interviewed her she thought that was true but uh, he really had seen her in the whole time's talking and but mr deeds consolidated her stardom but he was he brought out her best qualities and barbara stanwick was about to go back to new york when he met her and he made her a star and he made other people stars. He was terrific with character actors, too. He, he just had a great feeling for people and their complexities because he was a very complex man. And it sustained seven and a half years of work on, on that book and then a couple more years on the other book because he's such a fascinating character. Tell me about Arsenic and Old Lace and how that fits in and, and what was the backstory of that film? That's kind of an anomaly in Capra's career. And for a long time, you know, people wondered, What's what? What is Frank Capra doing with the story of two old ladies who murder old men? You know, I concluded, and, and I knew this would be controversial. And, and my wife, Dr. Ruth O'Hara, who was a great bulwark of strength on the book, and without her, the book wouldn't have been released because she was a brilliant legal mind and, and editorial mind. I concluded that that film was about Capra's dark feelings about his mother. Capra's mother, he called her a Halloween witch. And he told me that she beat him. He, I interviewed him for a year for my book, and I interviewed extensively about his parents, who were fascinating characters. His mother was a very strong immigrant woman who held the family together like a lot of immigrant mothers do. Because when immigrants come to America, often the woman runs the family because the men's uh, powers as the head of the family are diminished by the way men are treated in America and then the women have to take up the slack. Anyway, his mother was tough. His mother was, his father was kind of a dreamy, poetic fellow, a ne'er-do-well, but the mother was also mean and she would beat Frank a lot and he, he didn't like her very much. Actually, he, a great line he told me, which is very poignant, he said, uh, she didn't like me at all, but I loved her. I can hear his voice saying that emphasis on love she didn't like me at all but i loved her you know such poignant in line and he told me that she never appreciated his work and that was really painful to him of course and then finally when he did mr smith which he thought you know if, if that doesn't impress my mother what will he had a special screening at columbia and he had a limousine bring her to the studio and somebody met her with roses and she saw the film and then 
when, when it was over, he said, well, Ma, what did you think? And she said, Frankie, when are you going to get a job? <sighs> Can you imagine? And uh, that's the kind of lady she was. And I talked to people who knew her and they said, yeah, she was a hard woman, but she did love him and she did appreciate him, but she couldn't show it to him. And that's a problem with some people of that era. But I think he always suffered from that. So he made this film, I think, to exercise his feelings of fear and hatred toward his mother. These two old ladies who everybody thinks are wonderful are actually killers, serial killers. And uh, it's all comedic, you know, but it's a black comedy. And, and Ruth said to me, you know, when you write this, you're going to get attacked for... Uh, uh, because the, there's a weird thing in, in reviewing, it, it, when biographies are reviewed, and I have a whole chapter on this in my book, Frankly, Unmasking Frank Capra, it's all about, the last chapter is about biographies. When, when you write a biography and you talk about somebody's psychological underpinnings, you're attacked by reviewers for being, quote, Freudian, unquote, which is very weird to me because... You know, what's the point of writing a biography if you don't analyze the psychology of the central character? Because that's, you know, that's what the book is supposed to be about. And some writers are intimidated by that and they, they don't analyze it. Then the books are kind of baffling. But oddly enough, when I got into academia in 2001, um, I found out they're all Freudians, which is, I don't get it. I don't know why they are, but they are. But anyway, uh, I said to Ruth, well, I think I'm correct, so I'm going to leave it in. And sure enough, I was attacked for that. And I, you know, I just read another attack. Uh, they said, oh, McBride gets really Freudian when he talks about arsenic and old lace. But that's, that's the story. But it was based on a play by Joseph Kesselring. But I found out in going into the papers of Lindsay and Krauss, who were great playwrights, that Kesselring brought it to them and they rewrote his play extensively. His was called Bodies in the Cellar. And uh, they didn't take credit for the rewrite, but they did an extensive rewrite. And um, uh, it became a huge hit on Broadway. And Capra, Capra says in his book, I just made it to make money for my family because I was going to war. And I mean, that's partly true. And uh, they couldn't show it for three years because there was a clause in, in the contract with the producers that while the play was on Broadway, they couldn't release the film. But it was shown to the troops, but it didn't come out in America until 44. But um, I think it's a really overdone film. I know a lot of people like it. And I know Cary Grant thinks it's his worst performance because he's mugging and it's it's not your typical understated Cary Grant performance. But I once I went to an event with Capra and Cary Grant and his wife were sitting behind us. And I said to Capra, there's Cary Grant sitting behind you. Say hi to him. You know, and Capra said hi. And I heard Cary Grant say to his wife, oh, he's a dear, dear man. You know, so he liked him despite uh, the mugging. But I actually, I guess, you know, as people have said to me, you know, if you can just sort of get into it, it is a lot of fun. I mean, because it's just a, a way over the top extravaganza. But that's that's the story of that anomalous film. There were all those, what, contract things as far as who could be in it, who could not be in it, that weird switch of um, Boris Karloff or Raymond Massey. It sounds like a really kind of fascinating um, story as far as just the Broadway versus movie rights of it. Yeah, I read a, an upcoming book. I'll give it a plug. Charles Dennis showed me a book he wrote, and I gave it a blurb. It's called There's a Body in the Window Seat, Exclamation Point, The History of Arsenic and Old Lace, which is a good book. It's all about the making of that play and, and film, and it goes into the history. And, uh, yeah, I mean, for example, um, Capra wanted Boris Karloff, who was the star of the uh, 
Broadway production with the two old ladies. They, they, the producers agreed to give them the two old ladies who are wonderful, but they wanted Karloff, who was, you know, a big, big name on Broadway. And so Capra had to use Raymond Massey, who's rather good. And they put him in uh, Karloff kind of Frankenstein makeup. Um, uh, that was a compromise. And he has Peter Laurie, who's terrific in the film, but, um, so that was an issue. They, they, you know, they were jockeying for power. One thing I noticed, by the way, and uh, this is very telling, in the letters I read, I read all of Capra's papers at Wesley, and his letters are very revealing. When he writes to uh, playwrights and other literary people, he's very fawning and obsequious and flattering, and um, like Lindsay and Krauss, because he wanted their work. And But when he dealt with screenwriters professional screenwriters he was very contemptuous and very uh belittling and he would say terrible things to me uh, one time i was having lunch with capper and one of his friends in palm springs and Ka the guy said to capper kind of ingenuously uh hey frank what do you think of uh, screenwriters <laughs> and capper smiled he said fuck the writers you know and i <laughs> i put that in a, a article i did for the writers guild magazine written by uh, about briskin I studied uh, Riskin's other work, you know, to, to try to figure out who is Robert Riskin. It's called Riskin. Ask Philip Dunn, another screenwriter who was a friend of Riskin, said Capra's film should be called Riskin-esque rather than Capra-esque. Uh, and I put that line in there, fuck the writers, and the Writers Guild took it out. I guess you're not allowed to say that in the Writers Guild magazine. They also cut out another line that, um, and this is very germane to Capra criticism, Graham Greene, who's my favorite modern writer, he was a good film critic in the 30s. He reviewed uh, Mr. Smith, and he liked um, Mr. Deeds and some other Capra films, but he said that, uh, well, here is the Capra formula, just the same as it was in the other films, but it's a different screenwriter, and that proves that Robert Riskin's contribution was not important. And I think he really was totally wrong, but what was happening was Buckman, who was a great writer, but he was following the Riskin formula, if you want to call it formula, uh, and Capra followed that for the rest of his life, whether Riskin was involved or not. It's a Wonderful Life certainly follows that formula, and, and Capra tried to do it in some later films that weren't as good. But, you know, he got it kind of backwards. And I, I quoted that line in, in my piece on Riskin, and the Writers Guild wouldn't allow that in there either, I guess, because here's one writer disparaging another writer. But I thought I, I was trying to make the point that Graham Greene was just wrong, and, and I argued with him in the, in the article. I restored that for publication in a book later. Tell me a little bit more about what you've been up to, because you always have so many things happening, as, especially when it comes to your publications. It's just wild to see how many books you have and then how you're still plugging along, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, uh, Mike. Uh, well, I've been on a roll the last uh, couple of years. I've had four books out since October. This is now uh, toward the end of March. I, I did Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, a, a big critical study for Columbia University Press, came out in October, and that, that was a long-term project, and Wilder is one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, I interviewed him a lot, and I watched him shoot the front page, and I, I admire him so much, and I tried to track his um, his films in Germany as a screenwriter, and then uh, he, he wrote and directed a film in France, co-directed a film before he came to America, and then... He did a lot of films in Hollywood uh, as a screenwriter before he uh, became a director again. And those films are kind of unknown or uh, neglected in the German films. Most people haven't seen them aside from People on Sunday, which is a terrific uh, classic film. 
Emil and the Detectives is a wonderful uh, film that he made in Germany. But those that whole period is kind of obscure. And I also, since I'm an old journalist myself, uh, one reason I got along with Wilder was old journalists click immediately. Uh, I, I studied his journalism in Vienna and Berlin, <clears throat> which were published in books in German. Uh, and then there was an American uh, collection that draws from both, but it's just, you know, some of the articles. But I, I wanted to trace his evolution as a writer. He thought of himself primarily as a writer, although he's a very good director too. But, um, you know, I tracked all that. And then I tracked the films that he wrote and directed in Hollywood. And um, then I um, published in um, December, a, another long-term project came to fruition called Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy. And I self-published that through my own uh, imprint, Hightower Press. And I had done a book in 2013 called Into the Nightmare, My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett. And I've been researching that case since 10 minutes after it happened. And actually, two years before the assassination, I wrote a short story about Kennedy's assassination for my freshman English class in high school because I worked for Kennedy as a volunteer in his 1960 Wisconsin presidential primary campaign. And I was struck, I met him a couple of times and I was struck by his lack of security. And I, I was a student of the Lincoln assassination and I was concerned for his safety. And then when he was shot, I wasn't totally surprised. So I, I spent many years working on Into the Nightmare. And, and along the way, I, I studied all the press coverage, media, not only press, but uh, television, radio, motion pictures, books. And so I, I, they've been the mainstream media have been lying to us since 1963 about what happened, claiming one man did it, which is not true. Oswald was innocent, and it's a long story. But uh, they've been following that Warren Commission line. So it's the alternative media who have told the truth. And so I wrote a, a, a big book analyzing the media coverage. It's a very ambitious book. It came out in December. And I'm very proud of that book, Political Truth. And then in January... Um, I did an updated edition of Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, a portrait of an independent career from University Press of Kentucky, which came out in 2006. And I did a, this is the first paperback edition. And I did uh, an epilogue about The Other Side of the Wind, the film that I'm in. It's not his last film, but it's his most important film of his later life, which I cover extensively in the book. And I already covered the making and his attempts to finish it and my attempts to help raise money for it. And so then when the film came out, I was a consultant on the final version with Jonathan Rosenbaum, another Wells critic. And I, I, I summarized and analyzed, you know, what, what it is. And, and I combined that with too much Johnson, which is a, an early Wells film, 1938, which was serendipitously, rediscovered in a warehouse in Italy of all places. Uh, people thought it was lost and it's a charming silent slapstick comedy homage to early slapstick comedy. And you can watch that online film preservation, uh, uh, company as, has the, uh, foundation has the film online. And so I did a, a you know, it's kind of bookending Wells's career, even though it's not his first and last films, but it's early and late. And then um, the Coen brothers, I did a book on them, came out in March, March 1st, called The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers from Anthem Press, which uh, is a short book. I've, I've always wanted to write a short book. I, I, my books 
as I get older, they get longer and longer and longer because I'm, I guess as you get older, you see more complexities in life. My first few books were relatively short, and uh, but I, I've always kind of thought there are certain short books of criticism I admire, and I wanted to do one. And so the Cone Brothers book is about 100 pages long, and it's it's very pithy. I hope, and you know, it studies them in a thematic fashion. It doesn't go chronologically. I'm kind of tired of the chronological approach to film writing, and, and so it actually influenced the writing of the Wilder book. I took a, a thematic approach to his Hollywood career. So anyway, the Coen Brothers book came out too, and so I've got these four books out, and at the moment, I'm just taking a I don't know if I'm taking a rest, because I'm doing a lot of talking about these books to you and other people, and and I'm also teaching full-time at San Francisco State, so I'm, I'm mulling what I might do next. Professor McBride, thank you so much. It is always so nice talking with you. Thank you, Mike. It's great talking with you. It's always just a delight, and you know so much. It's, it's fun to share ideas. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. I want to know a little bit about you before we even talk about arsenic and old lace. I mean, you have had such a career. I mean, what would you even consider yourself? Director, writer, actor? You do so much. Well, all of them. I was seven years old and I had my tonsils out and my cousin Cookie gave me this big golden book of Peter Pan because the Disney animated film had just opened and I was looking at all these pictures and then I don't know where I got this idea from because I don't even think I knew what a theater was, but something in me made me want to take this story and do my own version. And I drafted all the kids in the neighborhood to be actors in it. And the terrible thing is we had no audience because I had every kid in the neighborhood acting in my backyard, but there were some steps at the back. And I remember there were two or three kids who weren't in it, who watched it. Uh, and that was the beginning of my, you know, being a uh, theatrical entrepreneur. It continued on like that. And then I would have been second grade. And then the next year, my mother enrolled me in this school that a woman named Marjorie Purvey ran. And uh, the the best students were chosen to appear in this radio show that she did every weekend. So we all aspired, waiting for that Friday. You know, Friday, you got the call. You went down to her class where she had, uh, you know, our own uh, set up there. And then on Sunday, the actual show was at CKY, which was a big radio station in Toronto. And I did that show for about five years. And I actually won, I won an award when I was nine or ten for for playing Little Ben, the alarm clock. <laughs> And it just it just continued on from there. And then I I, uh, I made my uh, professional theater debut at sixteen in Arsenic and Old Lace in Summerstock. And uh, but I'd already done that before when I I think in the book you read it. You know when I was in eighth grade uh, watching this movie for the first I'd never heard of it, knew nothing about it, and was transfixed and just couldn't believe that this movie about you know making fun of dead people and stuff 
had been made in the 40s. And then I, you know, say in the book, it said based on the play by. So I went to the library first thing on Monday, got the play and just, wow, I want to do this. And I, I persuaded the, the, it was, I was in eighth grade about to graduate from high school. And I persuaded him to let me do this tab version, this half hour version of the show. And then, uh, you know, the next year I was in high school and I'd already starred in the three shows every year in elementary school. And they said, well, forget it. You know, nobody in first year high school ever gets in the play, but the play turned out to be Arsenal Lace. And I played Dr. Einstein and, and, it's just been this thing in my life, you know, an ongoing. And then, and then when Tony Perkins and I became friends, I discovered that he had the same curse that I did about arsenic. And, and this is how we bonded originally. This book about arsenic and old lace, this is your first nonfiction book. Is that right? It is. My writing career began as a teenager, I'm working for the Toronto Telegram, doing uh, reviews, theater and film reviews. They had a, not they didn't run my picture because if people found out how young I was, you know, they would have been upset. They did get a, a letter saying that old man Dennis is so mean. You know, and I'm like, oh, you know, they don't know. I've had experience in writing nonfiction, but never a book per se that was not a novel or play. How did you go about putting this one together? Well, I knew I, I knew it would have to personal angle to make you know. Uh, as it does, you know, and, and the fact, you know, as I say in the intro, the number of people when I was a young a teenage journalist whom I met who had some connection with either the original production or the movie. Uh, and and uh, it's just, you know, I think probably this and maybe you can't take it with you are the two most popular plays that, that uh, amateur theater groups, uh, you know, do. I mean, now... I mean, if they're perfect because, you know, when you've got uh, either a high school or, or an amateur group, everybody wants me to play. And it's hard with, with most plays, say, are two or three characters, something like Arsenic that has, you know, 13 roles. Not a lot for women, but uh, it's a very, very, it's, it's in everyone's DNA. I, I, it's very rare to encounter somebody over the age of 10, you know, who doesn't have some relationship to Arsenic and Old Lace. I have to tell you, I loved the book. It was fascinating. Just, it read so fast. I just gobbled it up. I just loved, especially how you took it apart historically and really told that story of, you know, the original serial killer, Kesserling, especially when you were talking about Kesserling's early version of the play before it became what we know it. What a revelation. When I got those papers sent to me from the University of Wisconsin and, and read this thing, and then, and it was so awful. You know, I mean, it, but, you know, as, as Dorothy Stickney told her husband, Howard Lindsay, said, there's something in there. It's not very good, but there's some very funny stuff. But uh, he just, he just got in his own way all the time. And the, these guys, you know, they said, hey, you know, you can have your name on it. We'll do it now, you know, and, and the great revelation that, as I say, I, I don't think it's ever appeared anywhere. And unfortunately, I can't find out where that inspiration came from. But that Jonathan, instead of being this suave, debonair psycho, looks like Bela Lugosi. 
how incredible, even though how preposterous, because you couldn't say that he grew up in Brooklyn with Mortimer, and yet he appeared in this show for years. You know, he took, when Karloff left in San Francisco, he took over. As, as I say, it, it's not a whodunit, but a who wrote it, you know. And, and the fact that's very interesting, when, when it was done in the first color broadcast, in, I think it was 55, a one-hour version, which means with commercials, what was there? But it was uh, adapted by Lindsay and Krauss. And it's the only time that they get a real credit for writing it, which everyone in the business knew they had. Yeah, you comparing those two versions is just in what little pieces survive, just tiny little slivers survive between those. You know, somewhere is something about his stomach. But when you think about it's sort of like Abbott and Costello with Niagara Falls, you know, slowly I turn that that he'd put this thing in about pickles. And if he heard the word pickles, he fell to the ground because the world was spinning. Okay. You know, and as I say, he's sort of like the, you know, the flying Dutchman. He was just this guy with who didn't really have any respect from his peers because everybody in the business knew that they'd rewritten him. It was almost a curse that they put his name on. You know, and then finally that one last play that, you know, with that absolute preposterous, you know, and, and it ran for six performances. And then you wonder what in God's name was Otto Preminger doing with this? But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tragic story, this guy, Joseph Kesselring. I think he just must have walked around all his life going, no, no, I wrote this. I wrote this. And, you know, you know but they rewrote you. I mean, that, that, that John, uh, before Teddy was, was the Teddy character, that he was Willie with, with the, the walking around in a little nightshirt with his butt hanging out. And, like, and, and, and I mean, the, you know, the racist humor that I didn't even quote because it was just so, you know, I went, whoa. Because I don't know any plays around that time, anyhow, that had that kind of stuff. But he was a very strange man. He clearly went to Connecticut, found the prosecutor, got all the stuff about uh, Sister Amy, and then and then uh, erased it all. No, 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 no. This, this was, if, if my grandmother, my wonderful grandmother had been evil, she could have been the, no, 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 no. How long is it between when the play premieres and when they actually start to shoot the movie version of it? It was within that year. If I'm not mistaken, I think it opened in January of 41. And uh, I know that they wrapped by, well, when was, when was Pearl Harbor? Was December that 41? 7th, 41. Yeah. 41. Yeah. So they, the play had been running for about five or six months and and then they made this deal where, where uh, they let out to uh, Josephine Hall, Gina Dare, and uh, and uh, John Alexander, who was not originally. I mean, apparently, again, it's so bizarre. He wanted Andy Devine. Capra wanted Andy Devine to play Teddy, which again, you know, he doesn't sound like he's from Brooklyn, you know. I mean, the one consistent thing in, in that show is that they're very proper, you know, sort of mid-Atlantic, you know, Josephine Hall, Gina Dare, they have an almost English accent. Karloff had the English accent. Teddy had a very proper, you know, so so it all made sense. But, uh, and of course, Jack Warner thought, well, how long can the play, you know, they 
Lindsay and Krauss were they were very, very smart businessmen and top being brilliant playwrights. And they said, no, you can't release the movie till the play closes. Fine. You know, how long is it going to run? You know, a, a comedy on Broadway? Maybe a year? You know, great. No, this thing is the longest running comedy in the history. You know, ran for three and a half years. And, of course, the, the movie got clobbered as far as the Oscars, which is tragic because it wasn't released the year it was made, you know. I'm sure there must have been some other films. No, I can't think of anything that was delayed for that long. I mean, Howard Hughes did a picture called Jet Pilot with John Wayne, and he kept reshooting it because he was fast. You know, he loved planes and the jets. There was always more news, and it was seven years from when he started shooting it until he released it. So turkey, anyhow. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's it, it's it, you know there were no Oscar nominations for it because it was too late. It had been on the shelf. Is it true that Cary Grant didn't like his own performance? Apparently, but as I say again, uh, I don't see any difference between his performance in Arsenio Lace and his performance in Bringing Up Baby. You know, he mm, mm, all those noises that he said, oh, he hated that. Well, he did them before. As a matter of fact, you can trace those noises through many movies with Cary Grant. I find it strange that before that, the Cary Grant was not the first choice. You know, that 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 uh, both Jack Benny and Bob Hope had conflicts, work conflicts, and couldn't do it. But I just don't think it would have, Jack Benny would not have been right. And Bob Hope had already done those haunted house things. You know, he'd done Cat in the Canary and Ghostbusters. And he wasn't, he wasn't an actor. You know, he, he, when you watch all those things, he's sort of this very funny stand-up comic, you know, who, but, but you know, he was not an actor. Mm-hmm. For me, my favorite part of the movie has to be um, Peter Lorre, just because I love him so much. Again, he, he would have, how tragic this man was never, I don't think he ever won any awards or was never nominated. But I mean, Dr. Einstein should have been nominated if it was eligible for Best Supporting Actor. I mean, he's just, and he's, you know, he's a tricky guy, Peter Laurie. I mean, he, uh, you know, persuading Capra, you know, it would be very good, like we did at Ufa, if you could, if you could put the camera a shadow of Ray, and I'm sitting drinking. Yeah, so, I mean, you don't see Raymond Rassi in that scene because Peter Laurie has managed to steal the whole scene. And these improvs, you know, well, both of them, you know, it's hilarious, you know, and especially Carrie Gaga, would you stop underplaying? And it's there. It's there on screen forever. It's not a live in the movie. Well, that thing about the cat being in on it, too? <laughs> he was very funny. Very funny man. You know, he may, it may not be his favorite and he may have hated it, but my God, people love him. What were some of the biggest challenges writing this book? I don't think there weren't any real challenges, just regrets uh, that, that, you know, I'd had, I'd had access to these different people. But, you know, I didn't know I was going to eventually write a book. But I mean, my God, there I was with Capra, you know, at this, we were on this panel together at the second Toronto Film Festival. And then we had lunch together, and I'm asking about all sorts of other things. And in between going, I got to go to the bathroom. Come on, Frank. You know, and I kept taking him to the bathroom, and and, uh, we never talked about that. And I mean, you know, having lunch with Edward Everett Horton. But there were other things, other films that, you know, because, you know, it's, it's, 
it's not his most famous role by any means, but but I mean he's he's wonderful in it, but he's wonderful in everything. You know, and, and all those, you know, and as I say in the book, the that marvelous sequence when the Chester Clute is the doctor who, who they have to uh, get him to sign the papers. And and Teddy gets to leave the house. And you know, I'm thinking, my God, here's John Alexander. No, he'd he'd only done the part, you know, for five or six months by that time. But there he is suddenly leaving that set and going out into the cemetery, you know, and doing scenes. And of course the Epsteins, you know, they were they were so smart and and you know they they mastered this thing of opening up plays without destroying the theatrical aspect. I mean their adaptation of uh, a man who came to dinner and and uh, you know a bunch of others, but this one really is a gem. And again, they would have been nominated for best adaptation if the film had not been delayed in distribution. And and Max Steiner's score. I mean, you know. Oh yeah, I love that, and that it plays on so many familiar themes as well. With that whole "there is a happy place" is yeah, which which I, I didn't realize was obscure. I, I know it so well, I guess, because of the movie. But but uh, you know, they were after you know that that uh, producers uh, you know the code. You know, they just were. It was so difficult to get any kind of innuendo. The things that did slip by are amazing. That's why you know the the improvs. You know, if they'd been there in the script, who knows? Someone was. Oh, you can't say that. You know, you say it on the spot, you know, it's done. I was so glad that you really kind of explored all that stuff at the beginning with that relationship between, you know, Mortimer and his bride and just all of the the sexual tension between those two. I thought that was great. I really appreciated what you did with that. It's fascinating. You know, and I, I had such a crush on Priscilla Lane when I was a teenager. She just, I just, you know, even now, if there's a movie with her on, I'll watch it. Just, she just... You know, Doris Day came close and, and, you know, Doris Day, you know, repeating the role that Priscilla Lane had done in Four Daughters and Young at Heart. But uh, she just was magical. And it's really sad. She was washed up at 30. Uh, today, you know, actresses fortunately are allowed to continue. Uh, I mean, there were a few who did obviously uh, Stanwyck and, and uh, Betty Davis. Etc. But I mean, Betty Davis, by the time she was 40, I mean, the booze and you know, the same thing with Joan Crawford, but it's just sad, you know, because I really think that Priscilla Lane was a remarkable character. Hitchcock, you know, the saboteur and all those other pictures at Warner Brothers that she did. And, and, you know, she's totally unknown. I remember, you know, watching all, you know, when I was a kid, this whole batch of Warner Brothers movies had been released to television. So I would just sit there and I aware of this whole Warner Brothers stable of, of the, the repertory company. And uh, and then TV Guide had a, a an article one week, and there was Priscilla Lane who was living in the Boston area and had her own show for I don't know how long it lasted, but she was back, you know. But we never got to see it. How was the film received when it came out? It was a huge hit. It's interesting. Some of those Warner Brothers movies were seen much earlier by the armed forces. You know, because he wrapped the picture by December '41. I mean, it was the music, everything was, you know, certainly by January '42, the picture was done, and they're just sitting there. Going, okay, so what are they? You know, they would check every week. When's the play closing? It's not closing. They're sold out. You know, and and you know, the the, the Karloff goes on the road, and Eric von Stroheim takes over on Broadway. You know, it's it's amazing, amazing. 
von Stroheim, very, uh, very good Brooklyn accent. You know, when I read that thing, I said, well, they, they had him try and tone it down. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, but I loved when I discovered that story, the first time he goes on stage in Baltimore and, and it's a matinee and, and he wants to quit after the first act. And they go, what was wrong, Vaughn? And they said, they hiss, they hate me, they hiss me. And then they found that it was the radiator, that old radiator. So they, you know, he did get them to somehow tarred him up a little bit because he just couldn't bear the fact that he was wearing an old suit that was too good for him. But that's it. They've taken it off a dead body, I think. I can't remember where, where Jonathan gets the suit from. But these pictures of von Stroheim uh, on, on the stage, uh, it looks like he's wearing something you'd wear to a duel. I don't know. So he must have beaten them down a little bit. Was Karloff upset that he wasn't in the film? Oh, oh. Uh, well, see, he was in a very difficult position. He was making a tremendous amount of money every week, plus 10% of the gross. On top of which, the, the Lindsay Krauss came to him a month into the run and said, you know, don't you feel badly that you didn't buy a unit? And he said, yes. And they said, well, we saved one for you. So he had, on top of everything else, and his piece of the box, he owns a share of the thing. It sets him up for life, the rest of his life. He doesn't have to worry about money. But it broke his heart. And Sarah Karloff is a friend, and she told me, you know, that her father, it just to the day he died, the fact that he never got to be in the movie. And, and their whole thing was, well, when the old ladies left for the eight weeks and were replaced, it was already starting to dip. And they said, you know, if, if Karloff leaves the show, we're done for. What I find fascinating is that there was talk of Bogart going in for eight weeks. You know, he said, I looked like Humphrey Bogart. That's your work, doctor. You know, he would have, he was a big stage actor before he went into movies, but Jack Warner wouldn't let him out. Did you ever track down the copy? Um, that has Karloff and Laurie in it that they did for TV? Oh, that one with Helen Hayes and Billy Burke? It apparently just doesn't exist. But, you know, an Orson Bean who played Mortimer in that, and as he said, I was Karloff's supposed to be my brother, was old enough to be my grandfather. You know, Orson was like 24 or 5. You know, Boris was already well into his 60s. No, but uh, try and catch up with the... Um, there is that half-hour radio version with Karloff in the 40s with Eddie Albert playing Mortimer. And it's great to hear Karloff say that, you know, line about, he said, I look like Boris Karloff. You know, and the audience, a live audience, and they're laughing themselves silly. And he did do another radio version of it, and he did a TV version of it with Josephine Hull that was like 19, early, early television but there's no kinescope or anything, but I just cannot believe that there isn't somewhere a kinescope of that show. And it was in color. You know, that's the other amazing thing. You know, for years, the, uh, Bogart did Petrified Forest about a year or two before he died. He did it live on TV with Bacall and Henry Fonda. And for years, it was thought lost. And then it turned out Bacall, the hoarder, had it in the, in the closet. And she finally yielded it up, and you only got to see it, which I wish I hadn't, because he does not look well. You know, maybe we'll still get that treat. But he was, again, 
he was 65 or something by the time that TV show was done, you know. You know, that's that's the, you know, and when you look at, when you, when you see, finally see my book and see the pictures of Karloff on stage in Arsenic and Lace, he was lean and mean, and, and that's what sold it. So the book comes out in November. Comes out in November. I'm hoping, you know, because I have a relationship with Criterion, I've, I've done stuff for them through the years, that they will find me, because there's no Blu-ray of it that I know of. No one has done the Blu-ray yet. And I'm pushing them. I said, come on, let's let's get that Blu-ray out there. I'd like to interview uh, either or or both uh, Jennifer Grant, Cary Grant's daughter, and Lindsay Krauss, you know, Buck Krauss's daughter. But uh, it's, it's unfortunate about uh, Cary Grant, you know, publicly not liking it. You know. As I say, it's a wonderful performance. It's, a, you know, it's a great farce performance. Well, it sounds like he didn't necessarily have the best time on set, though. Well, again, you know, this whole thing about uh, Ori Kelly, who had been his roommate when he first arrived in New York, and Ori Kelly had just come over from Australia, and, and uh, they were living together, and whether they were lovers or not, who knows? But, you know, Ori Kelly was, was very, very out gay, and uh, Cary Grant by this time, you know, didn't want his past life being flouted. I mean, he, he and Randolph Scott lived together for nine years, but, you know, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily, you know, men used to live together, you know, roommates. David Niven and Errol Flynn were roommates for a year. Nobody ever, you know, cast aspersions on them. And then you can't even say cast aspersions anymore because we've come a long way as far as tolerance and acceptance, unless you live in Texas. So, you know, there was apparently some... You know, there's Ori Kelly designing the clothes and being on the set, and and uh, but you know, and, and so these these horrible bitchy stories, which like that one that I, you know, proved wrong in my book that, that from that documentary about Ori Kelly, that Queen for a Day thing, and then that guy going, "Well, the TV show," and I just said, "No, there was no TV show in 1941, and the radio show of Queen for a Day did not start until 44 or 45." So the story is full of crap. So tell me about your new play. Oh, oh, King Solomon's Treasure. 40 years ago, I wrote a play uh, that was done at the National Arts Center in Ottawa. It was a one-character play uh, that I wrote for a friend, a dear friend of mine, Eric Duncan, who was in the production of Arsenal Lace that I was in when I made my professional debut. And, and uh, he was a very dear friend, and he had been touring in this play about a... a uh, playing this woman, Sarah Binks. And, and he said to me, if I have to put that girdle on once more, he said, haven't you got something else that I can do as a one person? I said, I have this character who was in a book and I had to take him out of the book because he just stopped it and, and he stopped the action. But this character just keeps haunting me. So I showed him the 11 pages. It was an 11-page monologue. And he said, I love this. He said, do you think you can turn it into an evening? I said, no question. And so I did. And it opened at the National Arts Center in Ottawa. Then it came to Toronto. And then through the years, you know, I, I try and find, a, you know, someone in New York, a big name actor who could do it. And then this man came along about 20 years ago and optioned the play. And he had it under option for 10 years. And finally, I thought, enough. But we had all at different times. We had Hal Linden. We had Louis Zorich. 
Mark Rydell did two readings of it at the Actors Studio here. He was marvelous in it. And then it was finally done. The version that was done six years ago, there was an unseen character called Miss Carmichael, who uh, Franz Altman, this 90-year-old Auschwitz Holocaust survivor, is being interviewed about his life because he has this shop in New York and the developers have bought up everything around him, but they can't get him out. And he's become a cause celeb and Morley Safer interviewed him on 60 Minutes. And now Miss Carmichael has come from People magazine, but we never saw her. And by the time the 51st person said, Charles, why don't we see Miss Carmichael? I said, all right, all right, I guess she's, you know, it's going to be a different play. And it is, and it's a better play. And it's now called King Solomon's Treasure, which is the name of the shop that Franz Altman inherits from his girlfriend's late husband. And uh, it's, people just love it. And I'm hoping uh, our run ends in the middle of May, but then there's this thing called the Hollywood Fringe Festival, which I hadn't heard of to my shame. And and because uh, I, I had done a play at the Edinburgh Fringe about 30 years ago, and I thought, well, maybe we'll go to the Edinburgh. And I thought, no, I don't have to go that far. I can just do it here. So I'm I'm in the process of, of finding a theater and seeing if we can get in there in June. So the play will have legs. Mr. Dennis, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific. Thank you. And thank you. And maybe, you know, come back in November when the book's out. We are back and we are talking about arsenic and old lace. And so, Sylvia, it sounds like you saw the Tony Randall version. Yes, that was the original that I had seen back in high school when we were going to do the play. We all got together and we were like, oh, yeah, we can see this version. And we saw it. And I just thought it it kind of dragged. Um, and even though I was a fan of Tony Randall from the TV show he was in, it just it, it still kind of dragged it was just kind of okay yeah two ladies killing let's keep it (laughs) rolling but then like yeah when I saw the the Cary Grant version I I was sitting up straight and everything because you had to you you really had to be with Cary like you you had to follow him literally to to hear all the lines the sarcasticness the the undertones it was just so much going on with it yeah if I had to compare I definitely like put you know, they were on two different levels. These Literally, it was like watching two different films. It, it really, to me, it was watching two different films. And I even went back. That's why I said I had been watching this all, all, all week long. And it was because I went back and saw the Tony Randall version again. And then I went and saw the Cary Grant for like the third time, just so I could see, like, was there, I mean, was there really any kind of like, okay, yeah, it's just a remake. I don't think this was a remake. It felt like a whole new film just taken off the page that they they really did a good job with. Each one seems to want to introduce the characters differently. Like the 44 is the only one that has the whole, we start in Brooklyn with the baseball game. Then we go to Manhattan with the marriage license. And then we come back to Brooklyn and the whole thing of them with the cab. I mean, the introduction of Jonathan and Dr. Einstein is different in each one. And I can see what you're talking about when it comes to dragging, because there are ones where 
they don't come in for the longest time. And it's like Jonathan is almost like midway through the second act. And you're like, please introduce this guy earlier. And even when I started watching, initially watching the Cary Grant version one, I thought I was watching the wrong movie because we're, we're at the, you know, we're standing in line to get married. I'm like, what I don't remember. This? <laughs> what is this? And I, I had to actually pause the movie to check the title of the movie because I was like, I thought maybe I had clicked on the wrong one because I saw the all the Cary Grant version movies, you know, that popped up. I said, well, maybe I picked the wrong one. And I was like, no, this is, you sure this is our snicking old <laughs> Like, I'm, I'm sitting there just watching the screen like, oh, no, this can't be. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they titled it wrong. And I'm looking at the description. and But then, you know, you start getting into it and you're like, oh, okay. Okay, when he comes home for the aunts, then I'm just settling in like, okay, now we got the right movie. But it was just, I love just how he just grabs your attention from the beginning all the way to the end. And yes, I I definitely, I was going to try to watch the the third version that they have out there. But after you see Cary Grant's version, you're like, what's the point? I was just wondering, watching that film, my dad always used to, oh, I'm talking about in past tense, he's still with us, but he said when he was a kid, they would just show these like double bill, the films would just play all day, and he when he went to the cinema with his mum in the 50s, they would just walk in at any point during the film. And, uh, and like, so they'd often watch the second half of the film and then another film, then they come in. So in this one, if people did that with this, they'd think they were working, walking into the end of a film, the end of a Cary Grant film. And then it becomes a completely other film, which would have been absolutely conv- like confusing. Cause then you'd be waiting for the first half. Hang on a minute. What was that other Cary Grant film? <laughs> he married that woman. Because she's barely in it, bless her. The whole marriage thing is, is, yeah, like you see her very occasionally and she's just there because he, I guess he's having to face his heredity thing, his, what he thinks is a curse. So otherwise he doesn't want to sleep with her. But other than that, she's pointless. Like, what? In the <laughs> first one, in, well, in the Tony Randall one, she, the fiance plays a lot more role in there like he's calling her all the time like you see her more in the film and you know she has a lot more lines in this one she doesn't like you said she just she just pops in and out as you know as it felt like she just came in as a filler you know and even when they even when the Jonathan was trying to drag her down into the basement and everything it just felt like they were filling a scene until the next part she was very damsel in distress in the Tony Randall version. And you're right. The, the, the key word there in what you just said was fiance, cause they're not married in this version either. And it's this whole thing of like, no, we can't get married because my family is crazy. I guess in the 44, like he says pretty much the same thing, but it's, I guess like, let's not consummate our marriage because yeah. my family's crazy. <laughs> Takes on a whole other yeah, doesn't it? I don't want to spread my crazy genes all over the place. Yeah. The thing I liked about the Tony Randall version a lot, though, was, well, I liked Tony Randall. I thought that he was pretty good Brewster, but I really liked that we got to see Boris Karloff in that, though I think he was a little too old for that Jonathan role at that time, because... This is 20 some years. This is what 1962, I think, when this 
second version comes out, um, it was interesting to see the old technology and see this all, you know, uh, looked like a kinescope type of presentation. Tom Bosley shows up. I, t- I like that it took place like in one. I think with the Cary Grant one, they went out of the house and, you know, down the street. They had a lot of locations in that one. But in this one, it all took place inside the house. I felt like I was watching a play, which, of course, I really enjoyed, but it didn't have that play type of feeling. So then it was even more enjoyable. And I was able for some reason, I was able to keep up with everything because, you know, everything took place in that living room. That huge fan was more like a family room. Um, So it was like, okay, I could keep up with it. And it was it was there. But it's still the acting was so much better (laughs) with the Cary Grant one. But this one, it did. If you just want to know what the story is, you know, what's going on in the story, I would suggest Tony Randall. If you want to have a really great time watching a movie, I would say Cary Grant. The 62 version will not supplant the 44 for me. I will always go back to the 44 and watch that. I haven't seen any other versions of this, but there is, or supposedly, there was like a TV one with Boris Karloff and Peter Laurie, which I couldn't find, like a TV play. Yeah, there was like it. the Ford Theater Hour, and he also did uh, the Best of Broadway from 55, so I would have liked to have seen those as well. Yeah, they. the problem with old TVs, it just disappears, doesn't it? And it's really I know. Funny. That's the, yeah, I hate that. Don't get, start that, because I'll bring up stuff and be like, remember that show? <laughs> that had um, the one with Karloff and Laurie in it. That was Orson Bean as Mortimer Brewster. And I just can't imagine that. Like, I... I mostly know Orson Bean for playing like the voice of Bilbo in The Hobbit, but I was like, what the heck? <laughs> Orson Bean in this? I was never impressed with Orson Bean until I saw him on Match Game, and I was like, okay, this guy is pretty funny, but I've, I've never seen him in anything where I was just like, oh yeah, this guy's really good. He just always seems so milquetoast to me. With Karloff and Laurie, though, I love those guys. That would have been cool to see. I think it's great seeing Peter Laurie. I love him in his earlier stuff where he looks so bloody healthy. I know, because towards the end of his career, when he started working with Roger Corman, he just, not to be rude, but he looked fucking terrible. I mean, he was a massive drug addict. He was really bloated. And in them Corman films, he looks fucking awful. And then you see him in his earlier roles, like M or uh, Mad Love, which is just, I adore that film. What do you call it? The Maltese Falcon and that. And he just looks so young. He looks so young and he looks so fresh. He looks great in this. And you can hardly believe it's the same guy, just like a decade and a half later on, like what Hollywood had done to him, basically. Well, he just looked terrible not to, not to be a Hulk. Cause he was always great. And anyway, even when he was like not at his best, he was always great as an actor. Although I know he really did Vincent Price's head in because he had all that like Brechtian like improvisation. Whereas Vincent Price was like, I need to, no, it was Karloff actually on the rave. And he's like, I need to do my script thing. Whereas he was like more into like, came out like experimental Berlin theater. And then he ends up in Hollywood as like the foreign guy. Uh, or the comedy foreign guy or the sinister foreign guy. And, and in this he is, but he just looks so, he looks so great as well. He just looks so healthy. It's kind of sad. 
I thought of that because I was just imagining him with Karloff later on when both of them were like, Karloff was a lot older than him. But those later performances, you know, you'd think they just looked terrible. <laughs> they looked terrible. Karloff kept going to, he was like chair bound, wasn't he? Like, this is the latest roles. He's like just in a wheelchair. Like, he can barely talk and he kept going. But what well, that sort of latter point where you get him, Vincent Price, and Karloff kind of around, or doing like the horror comedy thing or very camp horror. And they just look fucking awful. <laughs> they're great and they're wonderful, but they look, you know, things like the Raven. They just, you know, they're getting so old at that point. Or, well, Laurie wasn't that old, but he'd kind of advanced himself, hadn't he, with, with drug addiction. So There's one other version that I watched, because this play, by the way, um, Kesserling's play, I mean, it still runs today. Obviously, Sylvia, you're part of uh, a production. It has been made for TV movies. Like, if you look up Kesserling's credits, there are 22 versions of this that are out there. He also wrote a play that was um, made into a movie called Aggie Appleby, Maker of Men. That's the only other type of credit that he has, other than maybe a um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Otherwise, it's all just arsenic and old lace. Once he got that... He probably ended up hating it. Probably... Like, I think he was sake. I think he was pretty proud of it actually. I think he was one of those where he's just like I'm the guy that did this even though if you look into this more and did the I think our interview with uh, Charles Dennis will kind of prove this out. Kesserling was like the original guy but the two guys that actually produced the Broadway play were the ones who rewrote it into what we know wow. as Arsenic and Old Lace. Yeah, there were a lot of bad ideas that he had that <laughs> really? they helped save him from. Yeah. But there was one other version that is out there and available to watch, which was from 1969, and that was also made for TV, and that had Bob Crane as Mortimer Brewster, which was unusual to see him. But I have to say, Helen Hayes and Lillian Gish are the sisters, which is great. Jack Guilford is, instead of Einstein, they've changed it to Dr. I think it's Herbert Salk. So, you know, they, when they call him Dr. Salk, they're like, Oh, the man that made the polio vaccine. He's like, No, no, no relation. But it has, um, of all people, Fred Gwynn as Jonathan Brewster, which oh, is, Oh, I can see that. Oh I boy. Fred and he's got, like the the caked on makeup again and stuff and they say that they made him look like frankenstein's monster not boris karloff it's great and you know fred gwynn is fucking hilarious so there are moments where he actually will crack jokes as jonathan and he does that kind of like open mouth laugh that he would do as herman munster oh it's so good i really like him. <laughs> i'm gonna have to watch i love fred gwynn i love him as herman because he is like you said he's hilarious He's absolutely. I probably would look that up and watch it with that just to see it. (laughs) It's so good. And then Bob Dishy plays the the main cop, the one who's trying to explain to Mortimer the play that he wants to do. And what's great is rather than them knocking Jonathan on the head and then that whole like I wish I could rest that well, it is poor Mortimer is still tied up and Bob Dishy as this cop is uh, just laying out all of these play ideas to him so much so that Dr. Salk and Jonathan fall asleep. And that's when the other cops come in 
And when they go, you know, oh yeah, we found him, and Jonathan thinks that they mean him, it's like, it, it turns into this whole thing. I, and that's one of the things I didn't talk about the 1944 version that I love is when they have that huge fight with Jonathan that we don't see the fight, that we're just seeing the reactions or when you, you mentioned Jonathan with the telephone. <laughs> Right, that just, was so hilarious. Follow Cary Grant. We don't care about that action scene. It's kind of like what's happening behind the tree. And I thought that was really quite well put together because I didn't even want to see the I didn't even want to see the fight scene. I just wanted to see Carrie's reaction <laughs> to it. Just like watching him sitting on the stairs having a nervous breakdown was more entertaining than anything. <laughs> He's what I love the fact they got they they got this weird jibe Starlywood in it though like the whole idea of the cop who just carries around his play ideas because everybody wants to get everyone wants a chance and it kind of does that and his references to the, like the Hollywood face and the director of the Crazy House comes and he has a play too I was like, I was like wait a minute and they're like oh hang on a minute you're you're a drama critic you can I tell you my play everyone carries around their play. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's one of those things that still works because people are still like that. So it's still, you know, it feels really modern, this idea of people just waiting in these other jobs, waiting to get discovered. <laughs> what I loved about this entire movie is that you could have taken this whole movie and, you know, modernized the film photography on it and then put it into a movie theater. And I think people would have just enjoyed this movie people would now just enjoy this movie as it is like and that's what I was like so entertaining is like I could literally and I know I know for a fact like if my kids would sit down and watch it and you know they're they're millennials and they're like oh this is stupid but my daughter she saw me watching it and she actually sat down and she was like this is kind of (laughs) good she was like what is that she kept asking like what is this when was this? Because we, I was at that time. I was watching the colored version of it. They had colored it, so I was like, "Well, that one." And then she was, she was like, "Interesting." She was like, she couldn't believe how interesting it was, and that's what I was like. Like they could have modernized, modernized the film, put it in the movie theater, and this, this, the writing would still be just as good to watch now than anything else. I introduced my son to "It's a Wonderful Life" two Christmases ago. And he just sat there the whole time, like just he, he was spellbound. And when it he was like, "Whoa!" Like I think that's the best film I've ever seen. And he was like, "The people were real in it. Like the people were real. Like I was like." And he he, he absolutely loves it. And uh, he's not one of those kids who will, like reject old films, but that one really kind of. And then he's like, he wants to see all the J- James Stewart films, and you know, it's like, is there more like this? But American comedy now, like mainstream comedy, is fucking awful, and I just don't understand how America lost its way. Because if you look at the, like the older stuff, or even through the sixties, it's like world class comedy. Like, and I say that as a Brit. We always were great at, at comedy TV. We suck at comedy film. Like, there are barely any good British comedy films. Like, With Nan and I is one of the few. But generally, like, our comedy films are always offshoots of these sitcoms that never worked on screen. Like, or Carry On, which I love, but no one outside of Britain who wasn't force-fed them understands why we have this weird affection for them. And um, in America, you know, you watch a film like this 
And you think, God, it still feels so fresh and funny and relatable. Like, how the hell did somewhere after American Pie, somebody, something happened? And then you just get like Paul, what was it? Paul Block Mall Cop, which oh, is God. a running joke. You with can't my count kid. that. You cannot he's always, count that movie. Yeah, he's always like, <laughs> let's, he, he always trolls me by. We watch a film twice a week and I'll sit down and go, we're going to watch the mall cop film like every time just to see my reaction because I'm just like, no, we're not. <laughs> but it's like, where did where did they lose it? I think they should bring this back, have like some renaissance. This is when America were like top of the world in comedy. It was funny. It was modern. It was satirical. It was relatable. And, you know, you could sit through. This is a two hour film, you know, and it's a wonderful life. How long is that? That's a long film, but you can actually sit through it and you feel like it's an hour. Like it just, no, nothing Lies is by. wasted. Yeah. yeah. Whereas nowadays, you know, you sit through like an hour and a half. One of those you're just like oh my god how much more of this do i have to endure this is making me feel ill like this is not funny i i don't understand how america got so lost with with comedy and there's not really been anything to replace it it all seems to be again in tv now like kirby enthusiasm and uh, i love south park I love Team America. I'll give you Team America. But outside of that, these just hideous, I kind of tuned out of it, these hundreds of films with people like Rebel Wilson in them or, you know, these, oh, I'm going on a stag night to Las Vegas and here's a load of terrible, bad taste jokes. All the bridesmaids came close. Um, God, no, no, please, no. Really? <laughs> Bridesmaids <laughs> came real close because I I did enjoy. I was I hadn't seen something really funny in a long time, and I, when I saw that, I was like, okay, I do enjoy this one. <laughs> that was they did hit like some of the marks in that one. I have to say, I think that might be the only Paul Feig comedy that I enjoy because the rest of the time he has no control over himself. The rest of it is just that. Oh, let's just have as many funny lines as we can and keep them all and not actually edit or use a script. You guys really need a script for your comedy. I'm sorry to tell yeah, you. I wonder if it was like the European influence, maybe then, you know, that old bitch sort of Billy Wilder influence, like all the immigrants coming in and all the people that were working behind the scenes. But it used to be a lot more sophisticated, I think. Even something like Arsenic and Old Lace, which is fairly simple, it's also multi-layered. It's sophisticated. The timing on each line, the physicality, nothing nothing is overplayed. It's quite understated, actually. And it's like you just don't see that anymore. It makes me really sad because I love comedy, but I find it so hard to find new comedies now. And it's been like that, like, decade after decade, post-2000s. It's like, where are the great comedies now? Where are they? Uh, there's been some great comedy horrors, but not straight-up comedies. And and it's something I think we're missing now. We are really missing. And America needs, needs to find a new Cary Grant. Where is the new Cary Grant? 
Yeah, I do have to say that this is a great gateway drug for people. If you're just like, oh, I don't like old movies and I don't think they're funny. I mean, this you cannot deny how funny Arsenic yeah. and Old Lace is. Yes, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> and then it's still so funny in 2022. I mean, all of this rings true and there's nothing that you're just like, well, this is out of date and this doesn't ring true anymore. These family dynamics I mean, it's it's a universal theme, and that's why I think this has also been translated into so many different countries is because these things play. It carries over very well. It literally carries over very ah. well. <laughs> if you want to see the sinister version, there's a Spanish film from the 70s called Candle for the Devil, where you've got two old biddies who run a boarding house in Spain, and they want to kill all the young blasphemous women that come over and sunbathe nude. That's like the evil twin. But there's no Cary Grant in that, unfortunately. There's Judy Geeson, who's looking for her sister. And I can't think who she, my mind's blanking who she hooks up with. But yeah, there's no comedy in it. But they are definitely successors of those two aunts because they run this boarding house they're independently wealthy they're just not they're not nice people speaking of what's missing in in film too it also good poison movies are missing and I, the reason why i know this because i was actually i did a, a book on uh, a poison that's located here in michigan and i was trying to find like a good poison film you know to give me some inspiration on how to use this poison but i haven't seen a very good poison film like someone just uses poison to kill victims or anything like that in the 40s though it was like such a thing in gothic mystery and melodrama everyone was poisoning everyone else the last good poisoning film i can think of is the young poisoner's handbook and that was, what, 20, 30 years ago? I just thought of that when, <laughs> when you said it. I was like, yeah. Yeah, because I couldn't think of anything. And I even went into to the IMDb looking for poison films. And it was like, oh, nothing. It's really current. <laughs> no one uses it. And the art is so old. It fell out of favor and it needs to be brought back. It does because it's a beautiful way to kill somebody. Like, yeah, get away it's with it. To it. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's actually, it is an art because you gotta, like the, like the unsay, you gotta make sure you put it with the right ingredients so it, you know, it doesn't, you know, bode well with tea or, you know, coffee. You know, you gotta, get, there's a, a beautiful art form about it. So, yeah. It, we need poison films. <laughs> What's kind of interesting, too, is that Arsenic and Lace was actually based on a real person. It was Amy Archer Gilligan who killed 66 people that were inmates of her old folks' home. Okay, I didn't know this. This is amazing. This is- <laughs> <laughs> I'm just getting excited. <laughs> it just makes it even better. Kesterling originally based his idea on that, and then I think he kind of forgot it as the time went by, and he's just like, "Oh no, I made this whole thing up." And I was like, "No, you actually based it on this case." But okay, 
I need to look into that now. This is amazing. Kesseling's an interesting guy. I have to recommend the book on arsenic and oil lace when that comes out against November of 2022. It is fantastic. I'm so glad that uh, Mr. Dennis agreed to be uh, part of this podcast because it's a great book and will really shed some light on stuff. I kind of wish he had talked about some of the post-44 stuff because one of the things, too, I meant to mention about the Fred Gwynn one is they kept in something that they would do on Broadway that isn't in the movie, which is they actually do a curtain call and they have all the actors come out. And one of the things that they do is the door to the uh, basement opens and 12 old men all come out oh, and stand that on is stage. Hilarious. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> I have to say, Bob Crane, I'm not that huge of a fan of in the role, but everybody else is really firing on all cylinders, and it is interesting. And I I don't know if there's a color version out of it around, because I've seen color stills, but the version that's out there is a really beat-up 16-mil print of it where you can see the splice marks, and they cut outside every once in a while, and it looks really weird because it looks like it's shot on video, and then they come back into the house. They're Like when Sue Lyon shows up as the fiancé, she's running towards the house, and you have Bob Crane going, look at her, she's so beautiful, and I'm just like, that's really a weird juxtaposition of these two shots. (laughs) (laughs) But it's worth it for the price of admission just to see Fred Gwynn as Jonathan. Pretty sure that's all available out on YouTube in full. So you should not have a problem with that one. Can we have a shout out to celebrating female killers who, I mean, I know they're mad, but you generally have this like film thing, which I seem to write about a lot, where female killers in films are either like the... They're, they're blackmailed into it or they're kind of in love with some guys, the main killer, or they're jealous or they're hysterical and they do it in the heat of the moment. But there's always this thing, but you generally largely don't see a lot of female killers. You just enjoy the art of killing. And these old ladies really do enjoy the art of killing. It's a pastime. Some, some old ladies knit and these concoct poison because, you know, it, they love it. They love doing the funeral rites. they got, like, a whole system. And I just think that's so transgressive. We talked about, like, transgression in all of these films, but I think that's one of the most transgressive of all because they're not just women you kill their older women as well. And we're miles off their whole, like, exploitation genre. You know, with uh, which starts with Norma Desmond. But even that was to do with jealousy and this kind of bitter thing that they're aging. But these older ladies, they don't care that they're aging. They're having the time in their fucking lives in there, you know? And it's like... (laughs) They have a meaning to their madness, and that just makes them more fun. You just want to, like, okay, who else are we killing today? I think we need to invite more gentlemen over (laughs) They're not written off as, you know, the, the, the kind of librarian trope that they find in it's a, it's a wonderful life. You know, she became a librarian. You know, these are, these are older women that have found purpose. You know, they, the age is just a number to them because they're going to carry on. And I really love that. I absolutely love it. And they're not made deliberately grotesque or horrible because you, you like them. You really love them, even though they are murdering those guys who probably didn't deserve it. 
just so happy about it that you think, yeah, you know, they're happy. Leave the, you don't want them to get caught. <laughs> like a bad puppy oh let him go ahead he's so cute he's so cute (laughs) all right we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show That's right, we'll be back next week with our first entry in a month of Soviet cinema as we look at The Amphibian Man. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and Sylvia. So, Sylvia, what has been keeping you busy lately? I've been actually doing a work in progress live for my readers. I have like an intrigue, suspense, romance going on on Amazon Kindle Vela, which is like a new episodic platform where readers can come and read while I write. So it's really quite cool as they try to figure out the mystery of who did what and are they really going to get a happily ever after. So it's kind of it's been keeping me busy and on my toes because they, you know, they, some of the readers are really smart and they try to figure out my red herrings. And then the other readers are like, why are they doing this? So it's kind of really fun. Keeping them like I have to keep a chapter ahead. Like, oh, my God, I can't figure this one out. <laughs> You know, you gotta, you gotta pull out all stops when, you know, they're reading with you as you write, but it's been really fun. The journey has been really great. And Kat, what is the latest with you? So I did a piece on interview with the vampire talking to decadent killers, uh, for screen magazine. That's out now. And, and I've also been doing talking to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I've been doing some behind the scenes stuff rather than contributing i've been producing extras for the second site 4k release for that curating booklet essays and commentary and stuff so that's been great just seeing all the different angles on the film come in because it just shows you how weird and wonderful everyone seems to have a different take on it and also then i did the commentary for red rocket which is out now by Lionsgate 84 and a commentary on Dracula and Son horror comedy with Christopher Lee for the Christopher Lee set that Saren are putting out and also support me on my Patreon which I forgot to say every single other week Kat Ellinger's Confessions of a Cine set so I do commentary and videos mainly me ranting a lot basically with some film clips in come and support me <laughs> Well, thank you again, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
Happy Land.